85% of daily fantasy sports players lose. Don't be surprised, it's rigged. You're playing against thousands of lineups and experts with more tools and time. Stat Hero is the first ever daily fantasy sports book that gives the player the advantage. Here's how it works Stat Hero shows you their lineups and dares you to beat them. It's you versus the house in a head to head matchup. You name your stakes and winner takes all. So go to stathero.com slash capspace. You can sign up for free. And right now you get 300% back on your first play. That's stathero.com slash capspace. Don't forget that slash capspace URL to let them know that you came from us. All right, the Boston Celtics did not get a good grade in Danny and my off-season grades podcast, which I think was that this week. I, I've completely lost track of time with all the pods we're doing, but it's time to bring in Jared Weiss of The Athletic and talk a little Boston Celtics. How you doing, man? I'm good. I haven't heard the, the grade. I'm going to assume it's a C+. Plus. <laughs> Is that, that that's no it was well below that actually really uh, you, wow okay well so so you thought they had a good off season i think c plus is a mediocre grade what, what kind of curve are we but, well on? c is c is average for us are you like did you just like just graduate oh. from business school or something where like, i went you know, a b i went plus to be average i went to bu so a c plus there was an a at harvard so i you know i guess <laughs> i i i actually am on board with what you're that like that's not even a joke like that was actually statistically accurate it was a major a major thing we hated back then, but whatever. Um, I did make it through college just barely, and based on a BU grading scale, then I guess I would give them a C minus because it was definitely a below average off season. It wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't terrible, but it definitely was. It was it, if if C is good, then it definitely was below that for sure. So they're like C minus flirting with a D plus there. Well, I think we got to get to the elephant in the room quickly, and that is the status of Kemba Walker. Was that? Oh, okay. I thought you meant Peyton, Peyton Pritchard. Pritchard. But uh, yeah, we can talk about Kemba, why is I guess. why is that the elephant in the room? No, I'm just Peyton kidding because because they have so many elephants in the room. If you notice one little guy in the corner, you know. But uh, yeah, so Kemba Walker's <laughs> knee is not a disaster, but it's not good either. Uh, the, the, I think the most important thing is trying to understand what the what the injury is and. You know, yes. I just I just did a piece on the athletic. I have to start plugging with Jeff Stotts, the man known to most of us as in street clothes, who is who even taught me stuff about Kemba's injury history. I didn't even know. Like I didn't realize that they had diagnosed the lateral meniscus tear that he had in 2015 back when he was at UConn. Like it's huh. he basically had like a torn knee for a decade before he actually had surgery on it. And so it makes it unsurprising that it certainly appears, although we don't know for sure, that he has osteoarthritis in his left knee. And it's starting, you know, now that he's 30, it's starting to cause issues for him. And so I think that what that mostly means is that the cartilage around the meniscus in his knee is wearing thin. And so he had an injection back in February to help kind of restore the, the I guess, the veracity of the vitality, maybe is the better word, for of that cartilage. Uh, and that, you know, that didn't quite work, although I guess the season kind of cut short, so maybe it would have worked after he returned, but he was only back for a few weeks. And then when he got to the team in June for pre-bubble training camp, they like realized, oh, wow, your knee is in way worse shape than we realized, and you're in need for a multi-month ramp-up period. And they didn't quite have enough time to pull that off, and they had to do a real truncated version of that. And so him and Danny Ainge both basically said, like, yeah, we kind of had to rush that a little bit because we didn't really have much of a choice. And that's why I kind of looked like crap in the bubble. And when he finally talked this week, he basically explained, like, the main thing I asked him was, 
what are you looking for as you quote unquote try to strengthen your knee as the team is calling it over the next month or two? And the main thing he said was, I'm looking to make sure that when I land, I'm not thinking about pain in my knee. And so that made it sound like when he was playing in the bubble, he was feeling a pinch in his knee every single time he was landing, that he just wasn't feeling. I mean, you know how it is when you're playing with a little bit of pain in one of your joints, you're just not quite, you're not quite getting all the oomph and that whole kinetic chain really maximized in the way that it usually is. So that's why in the bubble, if you go back and watch the film, he front rimmed every single three that he took the entire time, which isn't surprising when, you know, a guy at his size just doesn't quite have the usual pop that they have in their knee and well, pop in a good way, not in a bad way. So now at this point, he had a stem cell injection that's going to help just kind of uh, just improve the like the muscle buildup and the tissue buildup in the area around the knee. They're going to do a process that's probably going to take a couple months. They're planning on an update in the first week of January, so a month from now. I'm expecting that update to not be, hey, he's coming back tomorrow, but more, hey, he's on track and probably will be back at some point in the next few weeks and we'll have an update for you then. But I wouldn't expect him to be ready until the end of January, early February, probably as a best case scenario. Yeah, that seems to where it's headed. And you know, it's interesting. Will Barton came out today as well, and it sounds like it, it usually when these guys have these knee issues but they don't actually say what it is you know it is kind of this arthritic condition issues with the the amount of cartilage that's still in the knee just getting swelling getting pain as they try to ramp up their activity and will barton said that his problem was he couldn't work out the way that he wanted to during the initial part of covid i think we all have kind of even forgotten as a society that like no it was actually like i mean maybe not every nba player was doing this but that like a lot of players were just didn't have access to the team facility. They didn't have access really to anywhere to train, particularly uh, someone like Walker or Barton, where you know you really need to be monitored. You got to be getting treatment every day if you are going to work out. And so Will Barton said he came back in much worse shape uh, to start the bubble, where you'd be like, oh, you know, you, you have rust, but like you know, as someone who's had knee injuries too, like sometimes just resting and literally doing nothing makes it worse. Like you kind of need to find this sweet spot of like, okay, there's some activity, you're keeping it moving, you're strengthening it, but at the same time, you're not going too hard and inducing pain and swelling. And so you really need to be under supervision to have that. And so it seems like that based on what you're you're telling me that he wasn't really able to have that. He comes back and then they didn't, they weren't able to ramp him up quickly enough. And I mean, he had some moments in the playoffs, but I thought, you know, watching him try to beat switches, for example, uh, you know, basically anything other than conventional pick and roll, he really wasn't able to have an impact against the defense. And he really kind of got taken out of it in both the Toronto and Miami series. So hopefully he can get right. But, you know, for a small guard at 30, having these issues, I mean, you know, it seems like one of these things where they can kind of get him to where he's semi-functional, but I also have concerns about whether we're going to see the same guy we saw in Charlotte in the eighteen nineteen season again. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing is, is the first half of the season he was great. I mean, he was the All Star starter. He was he looked like everything that they had hoped he was going to be. And then just as the season wore on, it started to to set in for him. And I know people really point to him playing in the Elam ending in the All Star game as what did him in. But I mean, like. The, playing one extensive fourth quarter when you're already playing most extensive fourth quarters, I don't really think that's going to make much of a difference. So yeah, maybe that was the straw that broke the camel's back, but like the the back was breaking no matter what, if that's what did it. So 
I, I think the concern with him is maybe less about will he eventually get back to full form this year because they have the luxury of time at this point. There's no rush to get him back. They have Marcus Smart to run point for now. They have Jeff Teague, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit later, to, to back him up as well. Uh, but so they, they don't have to have him back right away and they can be patient. But the question is, for what we saw in the playoffs, we've seen Kemba Walker play great in the first round now three times, and then he got to the second round, and it went really poorly. And he had he went up against probably the, the two best defenses in the NBA to match up against him in Miami and uh, Toronto last year, and they just took away all the daylight that he usually was able to get on his high pick-and-roll game. They had length that could really contest well in the paint against him, and they just took away so much of what he did well. Now, he was able to get to like a lot of what he does well. He had a couple shots that should have been game winners, uh, whether he got fouled and it wasn't called, or he hit the game winner in that game where Ananobi hit like one of the great buzzer beaters ever. People forget that he hit he hit his like cardiac Kemba shot right before that shot went in. So, you know, he like you know, I think maybe the narrative on him would be a little bit different if a couple of those breaks go the other way. But overall, it was pretty apparent that like when he would come over a screen and the defense would play aggressive on him, he wasn't comfortable pulling up in those tighter windows. And those are the things that he needs to be able to do in the playoffs. Otherwise, he's just not going to be an all-star in the playoffs. So what are they going to do while he's out? Not be good. Uh, they're going to play Marcus Smart at point. It's not that definitive. I'm assuming that's what they're going to do. I don't think Jeff Teague is going to start in the meantime, even though Jeff Teague apparently is Brad Stevens' favorite player in NBA history. But so what I would do if I were them, and I guess it depends on matchup by matchup basis, is I would slide Jalen and Jason down to the two and the three and start Grant Williams at the four next to whomever wins the center battle in camp. We'll see how that goes between Tice and Tristan Thompson, but Grant Williams, he had a really good bubble. He he's shown that he can, he's pretty flexible with his defensive roles that he can handle at this point that we can't handle really speedy wings, but he can handle like a, you know, a pretty good amount of wing assignments that you throw at him and he can handle a good amount of big assignments you throw at him. But his, his spot up shooting was actually really good last season after he had that ridiculous 0 for 26 start to the season. And in the bubble, I think he shot around 40% on a couple attempts a game. So he is showing that he can legitimately stretch the floor. You could put him into handoff actions into like, you know, different pick and roll actions, or he can spread the floor. So he can kind of be that big helping to run the offense, or he can be that floor spacer you need out there. So I, I think he makes the most sense if he is still shooting well. And he says he had a really good off season and he felt like he really expanded his off the dribble game. So if he continues to improve at the rate that he's been improving over the last year, then he probably will be a viable starter for them in the meantime. Yeah, so it sounds like you are a, a big believer in what Grant Williams is is going to bring this year. Well, I mean, I'm his podcast co-host, so legally I have to, but I also, I am. <laughs> I mean, I really, I, I was a big believer in it before we had a podcast together. The guy, he he's like every, all the background that I did on him before, well, once he got to the team, everybody agreed that he's someone who's going to be able to really uh, reshape his game to fit in the NBA and then eventually be able to bring some of the skills that he had in college back with him into the NBA once he's really fine-tuned it. And that even though he's undersized, he just works so hard and so smart that he's able to make up for it. And everything that he did over the course of the year really fed into that narrative. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm especially the way that his shooting improved so much over the course of the season, I think that was just a real telltale sign that he's someone who's going to continue to grow at a pretty strong pace. 
I've been working with Indochino since way back in 2015. They outfitted my wedding with a tuxedo and sport coats for my groomsmen. I've got a number of suits from them as well. There's nothing like that feeling of knowing that your clothes just fit perfectly and you're not going to get that at some store. You're not going to get that off the rack. Yeah, they say that they can customize it for you, but why should you start with something that's made for someone else and get them to try to make it fit you? Instead, Indochino makes stuff for you that fits perfectly. Whether it's custom fitted suits, shirts, casual wear, and more, it's all at surprisingly affordable prices. Their suits start at just $399 with all customizations included each piece is made your exact measurements you can customize every detail the fabric the lapel the monogram they've got awesome statement linings as well whether you want to go into one of their many north american showrooms or book a virtual style consultation just go to indochino.com and you can get 50 dollars off any purchase of 399 dollars or more by using the code capspace at checkout easy to remember capspace which i put all the time around the program that's $50 off a purchase of $399 or more at Indochino, I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O, Indochino.com, promo code CAPSPACE. Don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know you came from us. It was about a year ago now that there was that massive shortage of toilet paper. Remember that? Even still, it, it seems like you can't get as much as you might want to at the store. And that shed some light for me on the idea that toilet paper is not very environmentally friendly either. Over 27,000 trees are cut down each day to make toilet paper. And that's why now I use Real. It's 100% bamboo toilet paper. Bamboo grows faster than trees. It doesn't need to be replanted. And it's just a more sustainable material uh, overall. It's three-ply, making it both soft and strong. Even the tape is plastic-free, as, of course, is the rest of their packaging. And every real purchase helps fund access to clean toilets for the 2.4 billion people who currently have to defecate outside. So it's good for you. It's good for the environment. It gets sent right to your house, which is awesome with free shipping. So you don't have to take up 95% of the room in your shopping cart just with toilet paper. No reason not to give it a try. Listeners of Dunked On get 10% off their first order with the promo code CAPSPACE. Easy to remember that because we talk about it all the time around the program. Visit realpaper.com, R-E-E-L, realpaper.com, and use that CAPSPACE code to get 10% off. Don't forget that CAPSPACE code to let them know that you came from us. Yeah, and then, of course, uh, another guy we have to talk about potentially improving I mean, I think it's really Jalen Braun and Jason Tatum now that with Walker out, Braun in particular now really being the no doubt second option. It seems like this is going to be his time. You know, maybe that'll be smart and Teague a little bit, but it seems like this is going to be his time to really, you know, he, he would kind of, he's probably scored more than people realized last year, but he did it in ways that weren't necessarily the focus of the offense where he was making the play. Maybe there'd be something where, you know, he's trying to get a quick duck in or like, take advantage of the attention of the defense being elsewhere but seems like this will be his time to prove as I think maybe he's wanted to do for a couple of years but they've had so many options to prove that he can beat someone creating on the ball as a primary option maybe uh, on second units at a minimum that'll be interesting because the Celtics usually have Tatum be the guy that's out there for the second units to run offense because he's comfortable running pick and roll yeah. in isolation. Well, and that's with, just not... with Walker out, there's going to be a lot of second units. <laughs> this year. <laughs> They're starting a second unit with Walker out. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, they, you're, you're right. And that's the huge question mark. I think with Jalen Brown's game is Brown has proven himself to be the ideal complimentary star where he's a great spot up player. He's a monster in transition. If he has a lane and he, he can attack it off the dribble and rise up and throw it down. Like he could do everything that you want someone who 
doesn't have to create the offensive scheme for you to do. Uh, but you know, if they're gonna they're gonna win the championship, they need him to kind of step beyond that and or shoot fifty percent from deep, which I don't think he's gonna quite pull off. So yeah, that's they're they're gonna need him to be able to run pick and roll. They're gonna need, especially when a defensive like when a defense is out there blitzing on Jason Tatum, which I think we're gonna start seeing a lot more this year. And teams defenses started doing that in the second half of last season, and obviously in the bubble. So when Tatum is getting blitzed and they need to take the ball out of his hands, Jalen needs to be able to be the guy that goes up there, gets that kick out from him, and is able to lead four on five or four on three basketball from there and that's hasn't really quite been his game he's been more the guy that he plays off to the side of the play or they run handoffs and stuff like that to get him into the play and so he's going to need to be the one that really leads the action and i i mean he's he's grown really well he's improved on all of his shortcomings throughout his career and that's just kind of like the next big hurdle but jumping clearing that hurdle i think is a lot different than refining your jump shot and being able to handle and transition and stuff like that you know handling and decision making in half court that's like the hardest skill in the game and that's why the big stars are the guys that do that kind of stuff yeah, and I think he's taken some strides as a passer, and I think just slowing down just in general when he gets into the lane to make a decision instead of just feeling like he has to go a million miles an hour at the rim, uh, you know, I think he could be able to make some hay out of the post a little bit as well. He's got like a nice little fadeaway. If he gets a mismatch, he can really back down and get fouled. Uh, it'll be really interesting to see. I mean, I think it, his development has been pretty solid other than a, a rough start to the year uh the last Kyrie year which was uh you know not not something that I think a lot of people want to remember in Boston so yeah there's gonna be a ton of pressure on him and if he can really you know reach an all-star level this year that can make up for the loss of potentially Kemba Walker and uh obviously the loss of Gordon Hayward as well um while we're talking about that I mean what is your comment on how things played out with Hayward, the fact that they did not want to do a sign and trade with Indiana, and now they end up with this $27 million trade exception. Is that how you would have played things out if you were them? Uh, and you know what was out there in sign and trade as best you're able to figure out that they didn't want to do with Indiana? Yeah, I mean, I was on board with Turner, and I, I'm of the thought process that $18 million isn't $27 million, so it's something you can live with for an overpriced center. And I've just I was a believer that you put Turner in an in a more spread offense with a high frequency pick and roll point guard that can really turn him into a positive role man or a pop man that he'll be a lot more effective. And then also with the Celtics defensive scheme, the way that they defend pick and roll, the fact that they have so many great wing defenders that bigs tend to look great in their defensive scheme as long as they know how to execute the scheme i just figured that turner would really take a leap in boston and so i would have made the move for him but i'm going to trust the celtics that they they know better than i do on their scout of turner and it's very clear that they just don't feel that way about turner and so they're willing to surrender probably a lot more draft capital to try to work the trade market over the next year or so and hey at least you know they've always they've always valued flexibility more than just about any GM in the league. 
They've been really willing to acquire draft picks instead of talent, uh, prioritizing retaining their draft picks instead of trading it for talent, stuff like that. So it really wasn't a surprise that they would rather get the flexibility of the TPE, even if that's going to cost them more draft picks down the road or more young players down the road to really make the use of it, than get Turner and McDermott that like probably are going to just even depreciate an asset value even more as you pick them up. So I understand it from that perspective. But the whole thing with... Ainge this whole time has been like he's amazing at setting the table but you got to deliver a delicious meal at some point and they they keep missing on all these windows to potentially win the championship and presumably with Tatum and Brown that that window is going to stay open for a while but if you lose this opportunity you had where you had so much overwhelming talent and because of a lot of poor luck and because of a few other factors on top of that it didn't work out the worry is that you're just never going to be able to get to that level of talent that's sufficient to actually win the title yeah I I think that's a a good point and you know they in some ways, you could say, well, they were right there last year and they, they outscored Miami in that series and, and they should have beaten Miami. I picked them to do so. But in another way, I think they really lucked out that they didn't have to go against Milwaukee. And I think they would have been really drawing dead against Milwaukee due to their inability to match up with Anacumpo. And, and we so, got their asses kicked. Yeah. And so in some ways, maybe this team looks better than they did, than they should have a year ago, even though obviously they had a really wonderful regular season uh, and now of course walker is out and maybe he won't be back at, at the level that everyone hoped he would be when they signed him and gordon hayward is gone the other thing about using the 27 million dollar trade exception is they had this issue coming up uh, of being in the tax but even now as you look at where they are to start next season the whole idea of the trade exception is you take on a bunch of salary and you don't give anything back well they're already right at the tax for next season and so they can't take on 27 million dollars for next year like they're not gonna be 20 million dollars into the tax next year like that's just not something that i mean you correct me if i'm wrong here but that's not something i've gotten the impression that this ownership group is willing to do and so that and even if they took on someone for this year you know then they'd be crazy into the tax as well so this idea that like oh yeah they'll just take on uh, some guy at 27 million dollars and not have to give anything back you know that's uh, that seems kind of unrealistic. And then they still don't really have disposable salary either. I mean, they, they've got their top four guys. You're not going to want to give up Marcus Smart in some trade. Like, he's still really important. They need some depth. And then everyone below there is either Tristan Thompson making $9 million. Maybe he's in a deal like that. Uh, and that's how they save a little bit of money. And then you've got kind of guys on rookie skill contracts. So I'm not sure that anyone who's like, oh, let's see whether Bradley Beal or Rudy Gobert fits into this trade exception eh, you know i mean maybe and but they still are gonna have to send something back at a minimum that's a significant salary if they're gonna pull off a deal of that ilk i mean you know they don't have the talent to acquire bradley beal because there's no point of, there's really no point of trading jalen brown for bradley beal you're not you're not dramatically increasing your ceiling by doing that. The whole point is you want to pair those three guys together. And I assume they're not going to want to get Kemba Walker unless they think for some reason Kemba Walker and Russell Westbrook are going to be perfect together in Washington. But so you're right, Boston, unless one of these guys like Romeo Langford yeah. or Rob Williams. And Beal like, does actually does not fit into the trade exception, by the way. I mean, I, I was, that was more, I think he's like, you know, a couple thousand or a couple hundred thousand ahead of it anyway, just, just for have, those, uh, those people who are, who are going to nitpick on us here, but. 
I had him at a hundred thousand, which it's funny because a hundred thousand is kind of like a dollar in Monopoly money in the NBA, and it's just so yeah. strange that they couldn't they couldn't work it with Gordon Hayward. Like, hey, can you just take like an extra two hundred k in the first year just to make this work for us? I thought that was really interesting that they for some reason didn't at least just keep that option open for the sake of it. But there's too there's too many other teams that can make great offers for Beal, or let me rephrase that will execute a better offer for Bradley Beal when he gets traded in the near future. Uh, but so there, you know, Ru- Rudy Gobert that I've actually, I think my, my story will be coming out on Monday about this and spoiler alert. I just don't see any reason why they would trade for Gobert because you're not going to pay him what 38 million or whatever it's going to be on his next contract. And the market's going to be out there, especially in this, you know, this cap environment coming up. So there's just, it doesn't make sense for them to use this trade exception to get them someone that's only going to be here for one year. And, you know, I I guess Gobert could be the guy that puts him over the top, but I'm a, a little, I'm a little, they just, they don't really need him. That's not really what they need. Uh, so it, it really makes the most sense for them to just use it, use a portion of that TPE this season, at least to acquire just someone to provide the wing depth that they so desperately need right now. And then they can attack next off season with enough money to spend that they shouldn't dive too deep into the tax if they spend it. Um, you know, you, you mentioned twenty million. I know we've kind of gone back and forth on this over the years, and I'll concede no one has ever told me this is how much they're willing to go into the tax. All their public comments have always been so unbelievably vague. Like their owner, every year he says we're willing to pay the tax for a winning team, and no one. And and then you ask him, so are you willing to pay a million or are you willing to pay forty million? And then it's like we're willing to pay the tax for a winning team. So. You know, I get the I get the sense that especially considering they apparently were willing to offer around twenty million ish or so, or if not more, to Gordon Hayward, they definitely are willing to go, you know, that at least ten to twenty million somewhere in that range into the tax where you're getting through the cup the first couple steps of the progressive tax, but they're not willing to go like Kelly Oubre levels into the tax necessarily. Yeah. I mean I think for most just about any team. 15 million into the tax is kind of a de facto hard cap because that's when it's $250 per dollar going up to the 15 million mark, but then it goes up to 325 after that. And that's that's when you get when you're paying basically $4.25 uh for every dollar that you're uh that you've got on the books for a player. It's just it's just hard to say, "Hey, we're going to pay, you know, add 5 million in salary and pay uh you know, twenty five million dollars for this guy. Like it just doesn't really seem to make sense. Um but, all right, the, let's, but the, let's, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. The, but just to be clear, the franchise does make enough money that they they're pretty they're in the similar ballpark of the other ownership groups that have been willing to cross that threshold. Um, you know, those ownership groups I feel like they had like pretty massive personal fortunes as well. So with the Celtics, it's not clear how much you're willing to bring in money from outside of the organization's revenue to be able to support them going to the tax. But they're like, they're a very valuable organization. They have a lot of real estate stuff going on. Like they, they should have the income to be able to support going to the tax for a couple of years. Uh, okay. So let's uh, talk about some of the new additions that they're going to have. Uh, Aaron Neesmith, Drafted 14th overall, Peyton Pritchard at 26. They had the 30th pick. They traded that for two future second rounders. And they got the same two guys back on two ways as well. First time that's ever happened with Tremont <laughs> Waters and Taco Fall. We don't need to spend too much time uh, on Taco or or uh, Tremont unless you think they're they're actually going to play. But uh, I think wa- tell us well, a little bit. Yeah, 
Go ahead, sorry. I'll just say Waters is some. I mean, it, there's a reason why the why this was the first time it's ever happened it was because obviously Taco is worth his weight in gold, and then um, Tremont like looks pretty good and looks like he should be in the rotation. And Danny Ainge, when he talked about their point guard rotation, he men- he mentioned Peyton Pritchard, but he didn't mention Tremont and he didn't mention Carson Edwards, who they just drafted last year and who's on a four year deal, which I thought that was the most interesting omission. Uh, so, uh, but everyone that's watched Tremont play, I mean, he almost won MVP in the G league last year. He won rookie of the year. He, he he's, he's someone that you can put in there and he can at least run offense for five minutes for you and he'll be, and make some plays on defense. Kind of the way like yeah. Shane Larkin. He's a really good passer. Yeah. It's yeah. just that he's five um, foot seven. <laughs> um, so tell us what uh, the Celtics got in Peyton Pritchard and Aaron Neesmith. Yeah. Sorry with Neesmith. It, it was the exact guy who I thought they should have picked at that spot. It was kind of, you know, he's a classic 14th pick where he's, you know, good enough that he should be a starter in the NBA, but the ceiling on him isn't much more than like the fifth best player on a good contending team. But, they have for years over and over drafted guys that are really well-rounded athletes and have a lot of skills. And then they have the potential to maybe be shooters and they finally were like, screw it. We're just getting a great shooter. And the one thing you know that he's going to be able to do is he's going to be able to be a classic shooting guard. He's going to run off of pin downs and catch and shoot. He's going to be able to spot up. He can attack a little bit off of closeouts. I don't know if he's going to be able to do it as a rookie, but it's definitely there. So there is definitely some room for him to grow and turn into like a buddy heel type, which, you know, if buddy healed, I think would still be looked at as a really good player if he wasn't so massively overpaid. But so there's definitely potential for Neesmith to be more than a fifth starter. Uh, but he is, he, he does, he does serve a pretty clear long-term need and should provide value in the short term, just being able to space the floor for them. Yeah, the question to me, number one, the speed of his release. You know, usually guys can improve that if they really showed a lot of, of, as shooters. And then number two, what he's going to be defensively. The advertisement for him, I didn't watch extensive film on him, but the evaluations I read, some of them at least believed that he can be a better defender, a little bit stronger, maybe not a stopper at that position, but you know, someone who can kind of at least hold his own if he has to switch on to a wing score for a possession or two, uh, do you see it that way? Does the organization see it that way? Or is it more kind of like, eh, you know, we, we hope this works out, but really we draft him for a shooting. I like his defense. I mean, I think he's a legit, well-rounded two-way guy, and that's why I, that's why I liked him better than like Sadiq Bay, who I think is a little bit more limited but has some real nice feel for the game. You know, Neesmith, he's a really good athlete. He's someone that on both ends can be really explosive. And one thing that I thought he did really well in in college is that so he he has like a six ten six eleven wingspan, pretty pretty good size for a guy that's going to be playing the two and the three for the most part. And he's really, he's really able to sink in off the weak side and crash the lane to tag on whatever drives happening and then be able to recover and get a good contest off on the weak side when there's a kick out. And that's something that the Celtics do a ton in their current system. So I think that he actually, a lot of the stuff that he did at Vanderbilt playing for Jerry Stackhouse, who runs a very pro-style system on both ends, I think that stuff's going to translate very nicely to the way the Celtics are going to use them. So 
you know, I don't see him being that good of a point of attack defender. He was pretty solid in college. So, you know, he'll probably be average, I guess, in the NBA. And by the time he's getting serious enough minutes in the playoffs that teams could start targeting him, I think he will have built up his you know core and improved his balance to the point that, you know, he's not going to be someone you could just lower a shoulder into and really move out of the way. How about Pritchard? Yeah, Pritchard, he's like one of these like classic Danny Ainge types where, I mean, Danny Ainge kind of made it sound like he thinks Pritchard's like another him, basically, where he's one of those kind of warrior undersized guards that he hits all the clutch shots, he makes all the scrappy plays. You know, he's he's a scrappy white guy. It's basically what his game is. And, uh, you know, he, he might be kind of like if TJ McConnell could shoot is maybe a better, a decent comp. Um, but he's one of these guys that's just going to bring a lot of tenacity and high energy. And he has, he has both a, a solid pick and roll pull up game and a spot up game. Uh, he doesn't really have any explosiveness, at least at, at the NBA level off the bounce where he's going to be able to hit somebody with a crossover and then leave them in the dust and force rotation. But he has like the vision and the footwork that he can at least create some separation to get past a defender and keep, and he's got like just enough size and power that he can keep a defender on his hip and use some more creative finishes or, you know, like, you know, uh, tricky timing on the pass to just get through the window that's open, stuff like that. So I think he's you know, a more viable player than Brad Wanamaker. Well, like, well, Brad Wanamaker was pretty solid. He just didn't really, he just doesn't really have enough skill to make that, you know, really make plays while it seems like Pritchard, as he kind of comes into his own over the next couple of years, and he's pretty old. I think he's already 22. He should have enough skill set that he can be used as that third guard for a few minutes a night. I've been working with Masterclass now for probably four years, ever since Steph Curry's class on shooting and ball handling came out. And I still find more classes that I'm enjoying. My wife and I have actually been sitting down together and watching Gordon Ramsay's class and learning a ton about cooking technique that basically we're applying right away. More her than me, if we're being honest, because it is the NBA playoffs after all. I don't have a ton of time for cooking right now. But I'm just continually wowed by the quality of Masterclass just even when they're filming him doing the class they've got like four different cameras there they'll show you an overhead view above him of what he's doing in the pan or the bowl it's really just remarkable and really whatever your interest is and however deep you want to go into it whether you want to just watch the videos whether you want to work through the downloadable materials as well and you can watch it on ios android we're casting it to our chromecast super easy the way to get started with them and get unlimited access to every master class and 15 percent off an annual membership is to go to masterclass.com slash capspace easy to remember because we talk about it all the time here on the program that's masterclass.com slash capspace for 15 percent off masterclass don't forget that slash capspace to let them know that you came from us now we get, of course, to Jason Tatum, and Tatum really had a tough start to last year that I think people kind of forgot about in the end, but then just absolutely was on fire in January and February, at, ironically, as Kemba Walker really started to drop off a little bit. That three-pointer off the dribble in a conventional pick-and-roll defense is becoming a major problem teams another reason why you just basically could not play conventional pick and roll defense against the celtics team the, the raptors had to go away from it obviously the heat either went zone or switched um the sixers got murdered uh in the the first round as a result of that so that's a, a huge shot for tatum now and 
you know, you hope that he can consolidate his gains in that area. I mean, shooting 40% on off the dribble threes out of the pick and roll. I mean, that's just completely ridiculous. And maybe he could take a step back there. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, not that we would ever make a bet on, on what his three point percentage is going to be next year. <laughs> uh, you should have taken it, by the way. Didn't he finish over 40%? Yeah, and you know what's funny was uh, Drew Hanlon told me I shouldn't take the bet, and and, and I told him, like, no, he's going to become 40%, and sure enough, it happened. <laughs> well, I mean, I think a lot of it, too, is just his shot selection is going to get so much more difficult, and it should get more difficult. I mean, if you're shooting 40% on threes off the dribble, you might as well take a few more, and even if you're 38% or 37%, you're still getting it guarded out there. It's still a great shot in the half court. But outside of the shooting, what are the other realistic steps that Tatum could take forward this year as he really you know, looks to get into being solidly in that top 10 players in the NBA type of group. Well, even before moving further inside, he said in his opening presser that his big thing he's been working on this offseason is moving his pick and roll pull up to the 28 to 30 foot area. So his answer oh, to baby. teams, his, yeah, his answer to the team switching up on him is I'm going to, I mean, how many wings have ever been able to get into that kind of Steph Dame territory. You know, KD does it. I'm trying to think. Yeah, yeah Luca. KD, I guess, KD does didn't it. didn't. I mean, could do it, but didn't really embrace it as much. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so you know, I think Tatum Tatum's kind of like that. You know, that next evolution of this of the KD Kawhi you know long wing where he's gonna be he's gonna be pushing the three point line further back. Uh, he, and then he's while he's still able to do all the downhill three level scoring stuff that they're able to do. But so, you know, if, if you can, if you can even just every once in a while take that shot, that would be huge. That started to show up in that crazy run he had in February, February, where he won player of the month. There was this one shot he took in Portland where he had like a behind the back pull up from 30 and he just switched it so ridiculously. It was just, you know, kind of blew everybody's mind. And even Tristan Thompson cited like that game in his uh, press conference the other day, which I thought was really interesting. So, um, but yeah, so, you know, we, we know he's probably going to continue to get a little bit better. The degree of difficulty is going to get a lot harder for him on those kind of plays. So basically the question is, what does he do once he gets inside the three-point line? He's got a defender on his hip, and he's got probably two defenders trying to trap in front of him. And so we saw in the Toronto series that that's what was happening, and he was kind of panicking, and he started throwing up really bad floaters. And the same thing happened in Miami as well. And he really he feels really comfortable in his floater game, but he started to learn over last season that if he can use those kind of two-footed pro-hop moves that you know, like the, that Durant really used, that allows them to kind of split the gaps when they show up and try to trap him at the paint. And that's how he's either able to get through that kind of middle line and go one-on-one -on -one at the rim or make kickout passes at the corners. So once he starts doing that more consistently, which I think is his main, main goal for this year, that's when the free throw attempts per game starts to you know creep up towards double digits, which is he, he got from, he was at like three or four early in his career to last year. I think he got to around seven-ish or so, which is good, but not quite at the superstar level. And getting towards you know nine to 10 a game, I think is that real top 10 player in the league kind of level so if he gets to that i think it's just going to open up a lot more for him and he's yeah i mean he's already gotten pretty bulked up there's definitely more room for him to go but i think a lot of his improvement has just been like he's finally strong enough to play with physicality and push guys off and so i wonder if there's going to be diminishing returns in that growth over the next few years just because he's already bulked up so much from where he started he doesn't have that much more further to go in that kind of growth yeah, so give you some stats here, which will 
kind of tie into this analysis only five free throw attempts per 36 minutes that's for a guy who's scoring 25 points a game you know which i assume is where he's going to be at maybe even more than that this year you know that you'd like to see that get better 48 percent from two again you'd like to see that get a little bit better you know i think really the only place that i would say he's an elite offensive player is with what he's doing outside of the three-point line right now and uh you know 3.2 assists per 36 minutes again he didn't have the ball that much it was a very egalitarian system you had smart you had walker you had hayward you had brown all guys who are handling the ball plenty and uh you know tatum doesn't have quite that like just blow by you get downhill get on top of the rim force emergency help it's it's more of a meandering style to get into the lane he's not like an abs he's a good athlete uh in terms of his explosiveness off the dribble but not amazing so i think that you know in terms of the playmaking there's a lot there i thought the finishing really needs to get better not only on floaters but at the rim and i thought he almost was like turning these shots at the rim into floaters he would keep two hands on the ball he was almost like shooting his jump shot off of one foot from within three yep. feet of the rim he has these long arms but he's not getting the type of extension he's not moving the ball around uh to you know have like a great feel for finishing avoiding the shot block so improving his finishing which is something that guys get a lot better at i think is huge like i really was disappointed in some of his finishing in the toronto and the miami series uh and then i think also just his one-on-one moves uh, i didn't think that he against both miami and against toronto maybe toronto in particular when it got down to the end of games and you know he was going against a fred van vliet or kyle lowry who are good individual defenders but he has a physical advantage on them you know he wasn't getting great separation and so i think you know that mid post turn in face jab step complex stuff even off the dribble to leverage the shed the uh threat of his jump shot off the dribble to get guys moving forward and, and get past them uh you know so I, I think those are the two things that are the biggest to me is the finishing at the rim and just a little bit more moves off the dribble one-on-one because that's like teams are gonna have to switch either switch or go zone against the celtics like you with walker if he's right and with tatum like you just can't play a conventional pick and roll defense so he's got to get better at beating those if they're really he's going to be effective second and third round of the playoffs where this team wants to be yeah you know a big thing you were touching on there is going up against guys like lowry and van vliet where it definitely seemed like he wasn't comfortable putting the ball on the floor in front of those guys as much and yes. I, I think a big thing for him is you know he's had to really learn how to make his game more efficient in his movements over the last few years and a big thing for him is going to be how do i if i'm you know in the triple threat against these guys how do i attack them more downhill where i'm able to very quickly use my shoulder to block them off and get you know get the ball protected i think he's he's just continuing to find ways to try to protect the ball even better because he, you know he's someone who has to really protect the ball because he isn't able to really explode by people in the way that even Jalen Brown is able to with his first step. So you know his you know him getting more shake and getting even just just even being even better with protecting the ball. Like he last year finally started using the offhand to really push away that defender's hands. And yeah, give maybe him a little bit maybe more a little too much. He, he definitely yeah do that. He got called for that you know once a game during the playoffs. Danny Danny was very focused on that during our live broadcast rightfully so yeah and, and he was incredulous when he was getting called for it and we're like 
dude, like you, you can you can keep because he's good at using his forearm instead of his hand, so that it is technically legal. But then there's times where he just he has a guy right in his chest and he just gives the full forearm shiver right to the chest, and he has to recognize like in NBA refs now, it's no they're no longer only going to call that if there's a full extension. If you clearly dislodge the guy and he goes flying, even if it's a flop, like thirty five percent of the time, they're going to call that. So. I mean, he's gotten a lot better at knowing how to game and like knowing how to work that. But also now that he's a young star and he's getting all the craftiest defenders in the league going at him, he has to learn how to not get called for a lot of these uh, fouls. Let's turn to the rotation a little bit here. And you imagine that Walker will be the starting point guard when he returns. I I agree with you that it would make sense to start smart uh, at the point and kind of move everyone down and start Grant Williams. I have this feeling that maybe Jeff Teague would still be the starter and that they'll still kind of want to just keep everyone in the roles because like Teague can kind of play as a Kemba Walker light in some ways. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't shoot any threes and he's, you know, he's not, was available for the minimum for a reason. He may even just be totally done, but he's a similar type of player. Um, so maybe the thought is we want to keep everyone in the roles that they're going to be in. Once Kemba gets back, we'll start Teague and, you know, then we can have Smart come in with the backup unit and, and run the point with them. Um, but Teague will clearly be part of the rotation. That's what they signed him for, I'm sure. Um, who do you think starts at center? So it that's a hardest thing to predict because Tice clearly earned and maintained that role last year, but there were some clear shortcomings that exposed themselves when he had to go up against Bam Adebayo and Serge Ibaka, where he just doesn't have the reach and the bounce to be able to play with these guys above the rim most of the time. And that's what Tristan Thompson should be able to bring to the table. And you know, the Thompson signing, I think we'll get into the use of the MLE at some point here, but the Thompson signing is exciting from the perspective that they were kind of playing with their hands tied behind their back last year and that they spent their one exception that they had on Ennis Cantor and Cantor just like wasn't useful for them in important games. And now they get someone in Thompson who does all the stuff that Cantor does as far as grinding underneath, uh, pick and roll, hard uh, hard roll kind of stuff. And he actually is like a, a pretty good defender who should at least be a good pick and roll defender, if not being able to switch and provide even more versatility. So I think the center position gets dramatically stronger, stronger for them. And that, that really helps take a lot of the blow out of losing Hayward. It's just that they at least are going to be a lot better near the rim than they were last year defensively and probably offensively too. But so at the end of the day, I would keep Tice where he is because I think Tice just proved to be such a good pick and roll defender last year that I think Thompson really has to take the job from him at this point even if Thompson's probably better yeah I think I'm not sure if Thompson is better uh and Tice didn't Tice have like some kind of a knee procedure as well he did which was surprising he he had a scope to remove like I guess some bone fragment or something like that that was a loose body in his knee that he had the same lateral meniscus tear that Kemba had he had that back in 2018 had surgery yeah. on it and, and I pretty thought much he really every year struggled. he scope it I thought he really struggled the last the, the year after that surgery do you agree with that that, that kind yeah, of he did him the next and year I think that's part of why his his leap last year seems so drastic. I think a part right. of it was just that he was healthy and he was just moving so much better. Um, but he's he says that he's ready for training camp, and I you know they said he would be ready for training camp, but I'm always dubious that that's really the case. But he says he's good to go, so it's very possible it was like a very very minimally invasive procedure, and he really is good to go. Yeah, I mean that was October 21st that he supposedly had this. Uh, 
the surgery, or at least when they released it. And yeah. so, uh, yeah, yeah, you said the other day that he didn't have, he wouldn't have any restrictions in camp. I think you know, whether Thompson or Tice is better, I think will really depend on the matchup and whether Thompson, you know, both of those guys, whether they can maintain their levels from last year, it was a bounce back year for Thompson after kind of two lost years before that. Uh, he's got a hamstring issue coming into camp, which might affect who the opening day starter is as well. And obviously Robert Williams will fit in there too. And it seems like Brad Stevens really likes using a lot of centers and having a lot of different looks kind of the same way as Steve Kerr. I think assuming everyone's healthy, to me, it makes a little more sense to start Tristan Thompson because, and maybe they'll just switch up the matchups as well, depending on who they're going against. But Thompson to me is just stronger, better post defender. So if you're going against a big brute, Usually teams are more likely to start that kind of player than bring him off the bench. And then Tice can come in with the second unit. I think he gives a little bit more offense than Tristan Thompson as well. Thompson can kind of clean up uh, on the offensive glass more than Tice does playing with the starters. Uh, you know, is it probably... They're both good screen setters, but I think Thompson is probably even better than Tice is there. Thompson can move his feet a little bit more defensively without fouling, which was a, a struggle for Tice. So I, I would probably start Thompson and then work in Tice and Williams off the bench, particularly if uh, Tice is coming back from this surgery. And then you just close with whatever the, the best possible matchup is. Yeah, you know, the, I think a couple things I'll put in Thompson's camp is that he, or one thing that the Celtics struggled with in the playoffs was, or the biggest thing they struggled with was just ball penetration into the paint. And they're, they're a team that just doesn't pick and roll at all. They run lots of pick and roll, but they never they never hit the roll man on a hard roll to score. That's just something that they don't ever really do, and and that's faded from most. You know, very few teams in the league do it at this point. They were, I think, fourth last in usage in that kind of play last year. But the teams around them were all the top. It was like the Lakers and Houston, and I think the yeah. Warriors. So and, you know, they it's don't like have the, a pick and pop threat either, which is another another way you can get usage out of that. Exactly. So that's where and that's where I'm going with this is that Thompson is I think could be a really good pick and roll partner as a hard roller that you could throw over the top to. He can go up there and get it and finish the power, which is something that Tice doesn't do at all. Tice has been very effective for them as a playmaker in the pick and roll where they'll have him do the snake and seal play that he does with Tatum where he rolls into the middle of the paint and then just sets a just sets yeah, a like a the, the box Gortop. out screen. Yeah, so the they yeah. well they insist it's called the Tice now, but it is the <laughs> illegally speaking it is the Gortat of course. Um, so he was really good with that and he's also very good as a short rolling passer. That was something that most people just didn't really notice with them, but he actually was the best on the team in executing that stuff. So they would run a lot of stuff where with teams, if they wanted to try to trap the box high up at the free throw line, they would run a short pick and roll with him and he could put the ball over his head or even spin around and go find a shooter that was wide open. And I'm not really sure how much Thompson's able to do that, but I'm assuming just Thompson playing in a team with just NBA caliber offensive players is going to open up a lot for him. So it's, there's no, clear pick on like who's the more effective pick and roll player but if they're facing the same kind of issues that they were facing last year in the playoffs where they desperately need somebody that they can get the ball to in the paint and he has the power and the athleticism to finish i think thompson is a, like will make a massive difference in that regard and that might be what kind of wins him the starting job at the end of the day because neither of these guys can pop anymore like tice he was a good popper the first couple years of his career last year it was it went really poorly yeah, he was he was pretty broke in the playoffs. I will respectfully disagree with your assessment of Thompson 
as an athlete, you know, I, I think he's kind of more of a ground bound, uh, you know, what would, what would, uh, Tom Heinsohn used to call those guys? Like they're like mashers or, Oh yeah. I, I, I can't remember what, what he would call a wide body or something like that. Uh, you know, I think he's kind of more that type of guy at this point in his career. Now, what he can do a lot of is put the ball on the floor for a dribble or two and get into a short hook shot, which it, with either hand, which he, he's which been, Tice cannot do at all. Yeah, yeah. So that's I mean, he's got a little bit more of a floater guy. I actually think Tice is a better go up and get the ball in the air kind of guy. Um, and yeah, we'll see where Thompson is at as a playmaker, but he is more a little more comfortable off of one or two dribbles at least going towards the basket even if he's not going to jump over anybody and finish and then he's still a, a monster on the offensive glass too which i think will be a nice element that this team hasn't had other than with Cantor. and Cantor obviously had so many defensive limitations and then they got rob williams too i mean it, do you think there's any possibility that rob williams is just better than both tice and thompson this year or is he just too it's just too uncertain I mean, he is so much more talented than they are that and can be in so much more impactful than they are that I think they would be willing to go with him if he can just show moderate improvement in his ability to one read pick or read defense beyond the very first action because he could defend a pick and roll just fine. And then he would and then like everything would fall apart from there because he just couldn't continue to keep up with everything as it would change. And then on offense, uh, he is amazing with the ball as long as he only needs to touch it for like two seconds and anything more than <laughs> one second, anything more than that. And things get really problematic. So, I mean, the, the, the talent's through the roof with this guy. Like he, he can go up, he can make any kind of aerial play. Uh, he, he, he doesn't have a touch near the rim necessarily, but he's so athletic that he can release in, you know, like so far above the rim that it doesn't really matter. And he can dunk so many dunks that shouldn't be dunkable um and then he's a really talented passer like he throws a lot of passes that you're like how on how on earth did he make that pass but then he also throws a lot of passes and you're like why on earth did he make that pass so <laughs> it's just there's just there's so there is so much raw talent for them to mine out of him and it's now at the point where he's entering his third season and it's he's got to show he's got it at this point because I wouldn't be shocked if they were willing to move on or I guess they I mean they wouldn't decline the option they would trade him as he's cheap enough but uh, he's got he's got to show that he can make it this year and last year he did he had some awesome games and you're watching him you're like this guy is unreal he had a game against San Antonio where he just single handedly destroyed the Spurs it was unbelievable but. He's been hurt the entire time, and yeah, uh, yeah. And there's and the types of injuries he've ha he's had have been kind of like nagging injuries that weren't even supposed. It wasn't like he like rolled his ankle and was out for two months. It was like he had hip bursitis that was a hip bruise that was supposed to be out for a week, and then he just didn't come back for several months. And so uh, he had he had a deep vein issue um, that was discovered when he was uh, at summer league when he first got drafted. So there's been a lot of issues that indicate that these might be chronic health issues that might derail his career and hopefully he'll put it together because the dude is so much fun to watch even if it's kind of a mess every single time well and the other problem is just that he got to be unplayable defensively even with his talent i mean one of the big things he was supposed to be great at was getting out on the floor and moving his feet and 
he was just getting traffic coned in any sort of a switch situation and then you know he's just not great for kind of the cat and mouse game of a conventional pick and roll defense either i think he can be a solid death piece and of course grant williams can move up to play the center position as well i I thought that's something that they should have gone to more in that miami series where that unit was going really well when they would have i can't remember what game it was where they had like a really nice comeback with him and took the lead and then things fell apart it might have actually been game six when they took him out and was, didn't go yeah. back to him um so yeah that i think they're gonna at least have a lot of different looks at center they don't necessarily have like that pure stretch guy maybe williams can evolve into that um so i, I mean i think there is kind of more competence here with this group as long as the injuries don't hit even with walker out where i think they can still be effective enough as long as Braun and Tatum can deliver as the top two guys I think there is enough talent and obviously the coaching of Brad Stevens around those guys to be still a, a solid you know four or five seed level a team until Kemba Walker gets back yeah and uh, and just going back to that last point you were making which was really cogent is that there's a reason why they went to Paul Millsap first with their MLE because they wanted someone who could you know be at least a three and D at that four or five position that they could count on um, that could be a rim protector and could handle brutes down low, but could also shoot the ball and provide some spacing. And so he chose Denver over their offer. They pivoted towards Thompson. You know, they still got somebody good out of it, but it's clear that that's there's just, there's a missing piece of somebody out that can make that can make a defense care about the three point line that you actually trust in high pressure situations. That's like their big thing that they're missing right now. All right. Uh, any strengths, big strengths for this group that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? Um, you know, I don't know if this is, this is a strength necessarily, but last year they had three guys that were top in the league and pick and roll scoring uh, efficiency. So they had Kemba was number two, Tatum was eight, and then smart was number 10. And they were, I think, I don't think there was any other team except for the Clippers that even had two guys in the top 20, let alone three guys in the top 10. Uh, actually, Shea Gil- Gilgis Alexander is number 20, and then Chris Paul was right at the top. But so, uh, you know, they they always had this offense that was really predicated on side-to-side movement, dribble handoffs, that kind of stuff. And then in crunch time, Isaiah Thomas, Kyrie Irving would go to that high pick and roll game. And then last year, they really they really kind of narrowed the offense, kept it focused to being up high above the slots and running lots and lots of high pick and roll, lots of plates that would set up high pick and roll. And it worked really well, and they had a top five offense. And I, I guess I'm wondering, after what they saw in the playoffs, is that something that they continue to lean into? Because that's clearly a strength of theirs, and it's the play it's the play style that is obviously dominating around the league right now. So is that something that they continue to lean on, or do they need to diversify their offense a little bit more and have a more complicated playbook the way they had to in the past because they didn't have the kind of high-level talent that they do now? Yeah, that's it's going to be interesting to see what the offense looks like and and smart is another guy who might relish an opportunity with the ball in his hands a a little bit more yeah i like that as a strength um yeah that off the dribble three-point shooting that's the biggest thing that you have to point to and just i think their overall depth and competence just to have now romeo lankford is sadly is gonna it sounds like he's not gonna be ready to start the season either he's got a a ways to go but just another year of grant williams where he's not gonna start the same the year Oh, for 25 from three. I think just the, the team having more <laughs> confidence in him with Hayward gone as well to just know that he's going to have an every night role and that he might even start, uh, I think is going to be 
really good for them. Um, and to have a, a few more options at center that they feel like they can rely on defensively is going to be useful. So I think the depth on this team is, is going to be better than it was last year. I think the weakness, the biggest thing I would have pointed to last year, number one, was just that I didn't feel that they had that absolute, you know, real top five level of star that you need to win a championship. And does Jason Tatum get there this year? Like, that's going to be a really interesting question when I do my top 10 players in the NBA ranking of where he's going to fall. And so if he's not going to be solidly in that top 10, realistically, this team probably isn't a championship contender because it doesn't seem like Kemba Walker, you know, is going to be a top 15 type of player any longer. Um, so I think that's just that absolute high-end star power is a weakness when you're talking about the rare fried air this team wants to be in. Um, I think they've shored up a little bit, just like the lack of physicality, because, I mean, they got destroyed by Bam last year. Giannis, like, they didn't really have anyone. I think with Grant Williams coming into his own and Tristan Thompson, like, I think they have enough beef now. Maybe not enough beef, but enough so that it's not, like, a clear weakness any longer. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like they shored up most of the weaknesses that they had last year, which was just inherent that their bench was insanely thin because they used all their draft picks and they had to let go of a bunch of guys that were kind of mid-career guys. So that wasn't, you know, that year was always going to be a transition year for the supporting cast. They've clear That clearly is going to shore up to a degree with player development and the signings that they made. But it's just that they lost that, that edge that they had with that wing depth at that high level wing depth losing that i feel like it's a much bigger loss than whatever gains that they get around the edges and so that's why unless brown and tatum are taking another big step and tatum is playing at the level he played at throughout the playoffs where i mean i guess usage might have definitely inflated his numbers a little bit but he was putting up like a 25 10 5 every single night um so if he's doing something comparable to that you know, then that probably makes up for the loss of Hayward. And especially if Smart, I think the biggest question on this team is probably Smart, actually, is is he going to be the guy that he showed a lot of the time in the bubble, or is he going to go back to who he was in the regular season? Because his scoring and playmaking and foul drawing took, like, this massive leap in the bubble. Are you ready for some or predictions? Or good leap, not massive. <laughs> uh, you ready for some predictions there? Not at all. <laughs> well, that, that is uh, uh, too bad. I fear because uh, you have to go first since uh, Keith Smith went first on the last podcast that I did. Oh, wow. uh, Okay. What is 0.58 times 72? Well, here you can just, uh, just give me the, uh, the 82, uh, your 82 game projection. And I'll be happy to translate that for you. Okay. Um, spreadsheet here. I, I, you know, I, I think I still see them as a 50 win team. Um, I think this team full strength is like a 50 to 55 range, which is pretty close to where they were last year. But because of Kemba, uh, his health, because Romeo Langford, someone who they really need for wing depth is going to be out for so long. I'm going to give them the equivalent to like what a 48 or 49. I'll go with the equivalent of 49. So um, that is which would make them like a 60 percent team. Yeah, that's 43 wins. Okay. Um, I this is surprising. I am actually higher on them than you. I mean, last year, they were a top five offense and a top five defense. And they had the point differential of a 58-win team. Uh, They were on pace only for 55. So they actually were on pace to win three fewer games than expected. I don't think they'll be as good in the regular season this year as they were last year with the the loss of Hayward, who was important, although he missed time. And then Kemba didn't miss that much time uh, in, you know, he missed a little bit in the bubble, but... uh, Actually, maybe he didn't now, now that I 
Kemba, Kemba, like he barely. I think he didn't miss any of the regular season games in the bubble, but he was on a like twenty minute restriction that was that's gradually right, that's increasing. Right. Okay, yeah. yeah th- thanks for that recollection. So, uh, you know, I think there are going to be a, a little bit harder hit with injuries this year, and they're going to get more out of Thompson than they did out of Cantor last year. I think the depth problems are. You know, maybe they're a little bit bigger because they won't have Walker for part of it. Uh, I think they're going to miss Brad Wanamaker, although maybe more in the playoffs than during the regular season because I just don't think – I think Teague is just too small. He's not going to be able to – and he doesn't shoot it, so I, I think it's just going to be hard to play him. But he playoffs. doesn't travel when he dribbles the ball, so there's that. <laughs> That's true. Wanamaker did have, like, a weird number of travels when he was – He had, like, 20 drive. travels in the playoffs. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. That said, though, I mean, he was he played 20 minutes a game, and he was a good player for them in the playoffs. He, his, I thought his shot really improved, and you know, whatever. We don't need to talk about him too much. I did think it was no. He deserved. He, he you know, what, he earned go. this. He was a minimum player playing as like essentially the sixth or seventh man on a team that almost made the finals. He deserves a lot of credit for being able to step up, and he had that one game, or that one game that always happens on those runs where he had like 15 points and basically saved the team in that game. So he he yeah. definitely he punched way above his weight. He, he deserves credit for that. But I think yeah. I well, do think he's not from the end Celtics because they didn't. Apparently not from the Celtics because <laughs> they didn't give him a qualifying <laughs> offer. But but from you and me, yeah, absolutely, we'll give him the credit. Um. So I, I think I'm going to go – I think they'll be a little worse than last year in the regular season. But this is a team that pretty much always under Brad Stevens has punched a little bit above their weight. And I think they can get more out of Brown and Tatum this year. I think they can get a little bit more out of Smart this year. The, like The loss of Walker for a little bit and Hayward for the whole season is – it's not as damaging for this team. And we saw that when Hayward basically missed the entire playoffs – and they still were able to make it to the East Finals, and it looked pretty decent doing it because they have redundancies in terms of ball handling and creation, and I think Tatum and Brown are only going to take further steps forward this year. So I think I'm going to predict this team to play at a 53-win pace over an 82-game season, so call that 47 wins as my prediction. So I'm actually, I'm four games ahead of you, it sounds like, which wow. is a surprise. Usually the, uh, the local expert is uh, more optimistic on the team than me. Well, you know, I've tried to be a little bit bearish just because there was so much optimism coming from me on the last few years that I've done this that I want to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> well, especially right, so- because the standard is so high now and there's not they're they're no longer in a situation where they're making huge progress and they're getting back somebody that wasn't, you know, like last year it was all, hey, they're going to finally have Gordon Hayward hopefully as a good player and Kemba Walker is not going to ruin the locker room like Kyrie did. And that turned out to, it worked out and that's why they were so damn good last year. And because and and I'm being very pessimistic or relative relatively pessimistic on the regular season record because of the Ki- the Kemba injury and because of the loss of Hayward. But I do yeah. think that they have probably just as good of a shot at making the finals this year in a vacuum based on their own capability as they did last year. Um, so last year, you and I both actually predicted 48 wins. We were both way short. Uh, as I mentioned, they had the point differential of a 58-win team last year and were on pace to win 55, which was my uh, both of our best-case scenarios for them um what do you see as the best case regular season scenario this year i mean tatum and brown just take another huge step forward kemba comes back and he's fully healthy and things look great and smarts uh smarts uh offensive dynamism that he showed a lot of in the bubble uh continues to carry over and he's able to get six assists a game and draw seven fouls a game or seven free throws a game um you know if all that holds true 
then they can be the equivalent of a 55-58 to win team in the regular season and have a fight for one of the top seeds. That's definitely realistic. And I I think for them at the end of the day, it's about the playoffs. And if all those things hold true, I still see them as as really on even footing with the other top contenders in the East to have a shot to make the finals. Yeah, I mean, I think more than ever in the East, it's going to depend on what the matchups are and I, I think also it's going to depend a ton just on what the Brooklyn Nets look like I mean if if KD is KD you know that's and Kyrie and it's makes over. it through healthy as batshit crazy as he is uh, <laughs> I mean he played at a really high level last year when he wasn't hurt uh you know and or if they make a trade too uh, as well for Harden I mean that's they're gonna be a really really good offensive team and you know they could have the most talent in the Eastern Conference. I just have no idea what to expect for that. I can't wait. That Warriors Nets game on opening night is going to be awesome. I can't wait for that. Um, I mean, I, so, I can't wait yeah. for I can't wait for the Nets just because they could be like what what like Atlanta wishes they were, which is they might literally average 130 points a game and then give up 128 points a game, and they still could win the championship that way yeah. because. I have no idea who in their starting lineup is supposed to be be playing defense allegedly, but their offensive capability is like so in, ridiculously insane. Yeah, so uh, you were saying 58, 55, 58 win team. I think uh, 58 wins would be 51 in the, the uh, regular year. That's what I would have had as well. Um, how about a worst case scenario for these guys? I mean, and of course, for those who don't listen to every episode, what we mean here is this isn't Jason Tatum gets hurt on the first day. You know, just normal injuries that are expected. Obviously, with Walker expected to miss time, he priced in that he could miss a lot of time. But for guys who aren't injured, we're not going to project that they're going to miss more than, you know, just the normal number of maintenance type of game. Yeah, well, I think a legitimate uh, perspective would be a possibility would be that Tatum does start dealing with injuries for the first time. He's barely missed any time in his career, and maybe that's something that happens. Jalen Brown, he tends to get hurt in like freak accidents all the time, but then he manages to come back from it pretty quickly. Uh, but so, you know, if, if those two guys start getting hit with the injury bug and they're missing chunks of seven games here and there, that's where they can really see the record tank. So between uh, that possibility, just the possibility that Tatum plateaus, you know, Tatum yeah. has been on like on a pretty, on a historically meteor, meteoric rise over the last year and a half. And maybe he just kind of plateaus to where he was last year, which is when he's not on fire, he's just like a really good, well-rounded player, but he's not a superstar. Um, and then that Jalen Brown also plateaus and he's still at a, I mean, second half of the year, he, by the time all-star voting ended in Right, actually, when he found out that he wasn't an all-star last year, he really went off on a tear and played at like a very clear all-star level from there on out. So I'm pretty confident he'll probably be an all-star this year. But of course, especially with KD coming into the conference, there might just be too many players that maybe he gets squeezed out again. But so either way, like it's possible that both of those guys they just kind of plateau and then they're dealing with injuries and they're just not really playing at that substantial of a level. And then Marcus Smart, for all the positives that there were in the playoffs, there were a ton of negatives of out of control play on both ends. Maybe with him and the really he's kind of the he's really the captain of the team at this point. And maybe he seizes that and he just plays too out of control and more furniture gets tossed around and more tables get flipped and the chemistry that they have that was really strong last year crumbles, which I'd be really shocked if any of that stuff happened. But it's possible that when they're not on championship pace that a lot of the fights that can get smoothed over pretty easily in this locker room that they they don't smooth over and there's a lot of you know kind of limping to the finish line kind of stuff happening 
Yeah, so I would say my worst case scenario would be 45 wins over a normal season. So 40 in this season, is that about where you would be as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems reasonable. They're too talented to fall below that. Yeah, and Smart is a guy who's had dealt with a lot of nagging injuries. He plays a very physical style, so he can easily miss time as well. But uh, he'll break something awesome, at some point in the yeah. year. What'd you say? Yeah, he's, he's he'll break something. Some point. Yeah. yeah, whether it's a picture frame or a bone, whatever it is, he'll break it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I, I was gonna get get you uh, get you out of here, but I, I'm glad we stuck around for uh, for that quip. But uh, where can we follow your stuff uh, before you go? Uh, yeah, you can find me at the Athletic, Jared Weiss, MBA on the Tweet Machines, and once a year on Dunked On. All right. Well, I'm uh, looking forward actually to reading your piece. I got it starred. We put it in our daily dunks uh, that we do for our subscribers today, but I haven't had, actually had a chance to read it yet. So uh, that's uh, what I'm going to do when I'm actually, for the five minutes a day that I'm not recording a podcast, I'm going to read some more uh, about the NBA. But thanks again for coming on. I, I do think, though, it, it's sad that we don't have a bet for this year. Uh, maybe we can we can come up with something. We'll come up with something real quick. Yeah. Maybe there will actually be a summer league to for one of us to pay off the bet. Uh, well, you know what? I got to go in for you, Marcus Smart. Pull up three point percentage, which I, no I should have looked it up was, before I said that. Let me year, let me find it because that was one of the stats I was supposed to have written down, but it was like shockingly good last year. Well, it, it didn't it didn't make any sense why it was that good level. Yeah, I mean, Let I don't me know that we're gonna have a disagreement on that though. That that might be the problem. Well, because I I mean, there's a very reasonable bet here, which is the project that it's gonna tank like crazy, and he's gonna shoot twenty five percent from three again, and you win the bet. Well, how about but this? Do, neither do you of us do, do you want to do Jason Tatum forty percent three point shooting again? Uh, yeah. I'm just. I, I'm I'll pretty. Take, com- I'll take the under. You take the over. I mean, this will be okay. Be a fun one. We should do it every year until he shoots forty five percent five years <laughs> in a row or something. All right. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. What, what was I, he last year? He was forty point three on seven 40%. attempts. Yeah, I'll take the over. What the hell? I think oh, I'm gonna yeah. lose. Yeah, I, I'm doing it. All right. I'm. I am salivating at that Momofuku. Wagyu already. <laughs> this time we're sticking with the regular steak, not the five hundred dollar. <laughs> they bring the they bring the entire cow out for you to slaughter thing that we did last time. It wasn't it wasn't five. It was like it ended up being like a hundred bucks or something. I think something like, no. like at least for for my share of it. Oh like, yeah, because you, you also had to pay we, for your own, obviously. Yeah, all I remember is I think I paid like three hundred fifty dollars at night, and I've never come even remotely close to spending that much money on dinner before. So that <laughs> that I. I, I think I had to. I think I canceled Netflix for like three months after that, just to help uh, ease the blow for a little bit. <laughs> Not oh, that man. I had any time or anything. Yeah, well, it's gonna. It's starting to evoke a Pavlovian response now for me, where I just start salivating every time I we do this podcast every year now. So my my, my mouth is literally watering right now, actually. So I'm uh, <laughs> they, I mean, they, just they, just the idea of us being in Vegas eating an overpriced steak. Just it, it's so unrealistic, and so it brings me so much. Uh, uh, what's the term for it? Uh, f- false hope. That's what I'm thinking of. It gives me so much false hope that society will be back to normal. We'll have summer league next year. Uh, but hopefully we will be able to do it at some point. Well, maybe if not, then maybe the G league showcase it next December. Maybe that's, that's right. when it'll be, you know, you, you'll really, you can uh, pitch to the athletic that you really need to, uh, go see Carson Edwards in his third year with the, the main reg clause, check in, <laughs> check in on how he's doing. Seems like an easy sell. Well, it'll be Tremont Waters uh, going for his third straight MVP that year. Yeah, yeah, third straight uh, year on a two-way. He and Taco yeah, Fall exactly. together. Ed- <laughs> they're going to rewrite the fall. two-way rules. Just allow him to stay on the two-way the rest of his career. 
<laughs> All right, man. They only, they only get one more year, yeah. right? Uh, I think you you can be on it for, let's see. Can you, you get be three, on years, it for three years, right? Well, you can't have more than three years of experience. Um, well, they, like uh, Marquise Chris was on a two-way last year for the Warriors for a time. Um, huh. So, I, and he is in his four years. So, three years of experience before the season, I think. But there might be, I'm not sure that you can be on a two-way with the same team for more than a couple of years uh you know don't worry it's not like i'm supposed to be an expert in these things uh, or could actually <laughs> look it up uh, now on dunktown prime nate duncan guesses what the rules are <laughs> all right man this is really fun thanks for coming on and uh we'll be back on sunday night actually i might be running this on sunday so maybe i should say we'll be back on monday night for dunktown prime and in fact this is going to be running i should i should have said this this is going to be running on regular dunktown so we should uh I encourage you guys wow. to sign up for Dunkdown Prime because uh, we have roughly 67 season outlooks uh, before the start of the season that we have to get through. So you're going to get your money's worth. Uh, it, and people. we did a lot of awesome stuff like off-season grades and stuff. You can get all the all the archives as well. So it's a good reason to sign up for Dunkdown Prime now as we are uh, actually going to have a season here. How are you? Well, the most drama-filled team in the NBA. Can we say that about the LA Clippers? Uh, perhaps we should. And... One of the people who will no doubt be blamed for creating that drama, although, as we know, he's just reporting on what's actually there, is Jovan Pua. How are you doing, man? I'm doing well. Uh, I, I've been better, but uh, I'm doing well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this has just been an absolute whirlwind for beat reporters. Um, I mean, poor, poor Fred Katz. <laughs> he just, like, he, he's had all this stuff, and then John Wall gets traded yesterday, uh, two days after, after we did the the wizards preview hopefully that's not coming with the clippers i mean they're they're not going to be that mad at paul george right oof those <laughs> yeah i he sometimes uh puts his foot in his mouth i i mean it, it really it, it does seem like it, do you think he was uh, and for those who missed his comments he basically said we didn't make any adjustments over the course of the playoff series against the nuggets and he didn't want to be used like ray allen or jj reddick coming off of pin downs which you know as kevin o'connor of the ringer pointed out i'm sure you're well aware of also is not really accurate that he mm -hmm. actually ran way more pick and roll than he ever had last year uh but does he do you think he understands like that he's really like taking a shot at doc rivers when he's saying that or is he just kind of like kicking back with Stephen Jackson and you know, just saying what's on his mind and like not even realizing it. I, I think he's aware. Um, I, I th and and to be honest, like I, I think he has a point with some of that. I mean, I, I do think looking back on that series um, and, and even in, in the playoffs, like, you know, th this was something that I reported after Doc, you know, they, they mutually parted ways with him, um, which even kind of looking into that situation, there, there have been some stuff coming out on Doc's side that he didn't expect to be let go. So you, you kind of think maybe the team is, is framing it more as a mutual parting of ways th than Doc was. But, um, you know, there was a lack of adjustments throughout the, you know, throughout the playoffs. And, um, you know, I, I talked to, you know, Clippers people that were nervous about the Dallas series and, and felt that had Porzingis been healthy, they might've lost that series or it would have gone seven and, and, and down to the wire in a game seven. So um, I do think there, there was, there's definitely some criticism on Doc and his lack of adjustments, um, you know, overplaying Montrez Harrell, um, you know, relying too much on Reggie Jackson in that Dallas series. Um, so he, he deserves the blame. But, you know, as you pointed out, 
it, I don't think it was really on the way he used Paul George. Um, you know, I, I felt, you know, a lot of the Paul George stuff was self-inflicted. Um, and, and just, you know, if you look at his shot profile, like one of the biggest differences from his top three finish, uh, you know, his, his third place finish in MVP in OKC versus last year was his free throw rate. You know, he, he got to the free throw line a, a lot less and became uh, more jump shot reliant. But so, I mean, I, I do... But the problem is this this kind of falls into that narrative with PG that he never really takes accountability or responsibility for his poor play. And, and you know, they're all, you know, going back to OKC or Indiana, there had been excuses in, in certain instances. And I think that just kind of goes with that narrative. And, and that's what some people on, on Twitter were upset with. But, um, you know, I think he has a point to, with, with some of it. But I think when talking about himself, um, I, I think some of that stuff was misguided and, and just, you know, factually incorrect. Well, and I think if you had to make a list of the reasons of why they lost to the Nuggets the way they did. I mean, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George just not playing well enough. As much as you want to blame Doc Rivers and Montrez Harrell and all that stuff, I mean, those guys were, what, a combined, like, 8 out of 29 in the last mm-hmm. game? I mean, yeah. you know, like, like it, missing open shots, not able to get good shots, uh, looking really tired out there. I mean, that's, that's the number one reason why they lost. I mean, they couldn't score against mm-hmm. the Nuggets. Like, that's not doc rivers fault that like shots aren't going in in fact like they actually per all the second spectrum data were creating good shots throughout the series and just uh particularly by the end didn't go in so i, I mean it does it does show a little bit of, of a lack of accountability and that of course uh, per your reporting uh your piece that came out before these comments were released was that you know that's a big problem that his teammates had with him last year mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i think that is going to be the the central thing with the Clippers this season. Um, you know, a, a lot has been made with the preferential treatment stuff, and I, I've tried to contextualize it in, in both of the big chemistry stories I've done. In that, you know, preferential treatment is a thing in the NBA. If you go locker room by locker room, you're you're going to see the all star or or the face of the franchise get some level of that. Um, I think in this instance, it was more of the, the culture shift and, and the way it affected, you know, th- their teammates. And, and it wasn't just that, you know, it, it okay. You know, and, and some, you know, like if you look at the Lakers, Le- LeBron and AD are going to get their level of special treatment and, and, you know, whatever those yeah. things are, but exactly. those, those guys bought into it. You know, Danny green understood his role. Uh, you know, JaVale McGee understood his role down the list. Like all those guys bought into the culture and, and everybody was fine with where they were in the pecking order and their roles and responsibilities. That was not the case with the Clippers. And there was too much of, you know, resentment and, and jealousy and, and pettiness. And, and why is this guy getting this? And I'm not getting this. And, um, you know, it wasn't just one guy. It wasn't two guys. You know, it was four, five, six guys. And I think when you have that, it's kind of, you know, miraculous that they were as good as they were, you know, top five offense, top five defense, um, you know, should have made the conference finals at a minimum. Like th- this team, you know, in spite of all that, was really, really good um, and, and, you know, a legitimate championship contender. So uh, for, for me, it's just going to be how they suss through some of these issues. Um, is it the Ty Lue change? Is it shuffling the bench as they did and, and bringing in someone like Serge Ibaka, who, who has a relationship with Kawhi? Like, but I mean, they, they still haven't plugged all their holes and they still haven't added a, I think, a true locker room leader. Um, but, but to me, all this accountability stuff is what's going to determine uh, this team and, and, you know, this team season. You know, it's funny that you mentioned LeBron. Like, yeah, you, anyone who thinks that LeBron James doesn't get special treatment is completely kidding themselves. But LeBron, at least, you know, and, and you, there are varying accounts on how genuine people find this, but he at least tries to do the teammate thing. He mm-hmm. tries to be the leader. He's tries to be socially involved with the, the rest of the team. And 
you know, a lot of people want to come and play with him. They want, they view him as a great leader and someone that they could learn from. You know, you don't see Kawhi Leonard, okay, I'm going to pull this guy, this young player aside and say, hey, here's what we need from you. Or if someone is unhappy with their role for him to like try to manage that person a little bit. Like if he's kind of, it seemed like Kawhi was moving to LA to kind of just get everything that he'd ever wanted, whether that was not talking to the media, whether it's, you know, this thing where he's uh, by himself kicking female staffers out of the locker room that you, you reported on or uh, anything else. He wanted to do things exactly his way and he didn't want to have to do any of the stuff that he didn't want to do because he's a very private person. And it seems like that, that doesn't work from uh, your best player in the end, unless you have, Greg Popovich or Tony Parker or Tim Duncan or Cal Lowry and Marcus Soule there, there wasn't that guy last year. And I think, would you agree with me that that ended up not really working out? Yeah. And and that was something I, I've been told, you know, throughout the season that was in the first piece. And, and then this most recent one, like, I think there would have been a, a greater level of acceptance to, to some of the concessions and the perks and the benefits had teammates felt Kawhi and PG had a relationship and a rapport with them. Um, and, and, you know, and, you know, what one person told me was like, there was times during the season where those guys were out, right? Like, you know, PG missed the first 10 games, ended up missing, um, you know, 20 plus games. Ka- Kawhi was doing, uh, you know, the injury management uh, protocol and, and, you know, resting on back-to-backs. Like, you know, those times when, when they're just sitting there uh, on the bench, like, uh, you know, around their teammates or in the locker room, like, you know, not having to warm up and stretch and get focused and, and get into the game. Like, that's when you could be, you know, just shooting the breeze with guys and, and getting to know them and, and, and you know, asking them about, their background or whatever, and, and, and just kind of building that rapport that was just never there. Um, and, you know, so I, I don't think it wasn't like it, this super toxic, you know, th- this wasn't a Kobe Shaq, you know, early 2000s type dynamic. Like nobody on this team necessarily like hated each other, but it just was a lot of like, we, you know, we're colleagues. We're not really friends. We don't really have a relationship out of this. So I, I think they got along fine, like on the court for the most part. Um, but if you look at the teams that made the conference finals, I mean, the Lakers clearly had really good chemistry. The the Nuggets, uh, the the Celtics, um, you know, the Heat. Like, I I thought uh, one thing that kind of showed maybe the difference between, like, let's say the Celtics versus the Clippers was Celtics had that, um, you know, instance after the the Heat, uh, one of their losses to the Heat where, you know, there's shouting in the locker room um, and, and, you know, everyone came out and talked about it. Everyone that spoke to the media, like, addressed it, admitted that that happened. And then the next day, they were all out of the pool and, and, you know, filming, uh, you know, that was, uh, I think, Marcus Smart and Ennis Cantor wrestling each other. And, like, they kind of played into it and and admitted that it was true and and then kind of came out and showed, like, we're still teammates. Like, with the Clippers, it was a lot of, you know, denial and, and, you know, nothing Things wrong and and you know that, that, that's fake news and, and this and that and then the first thing as i have in the story they lose game seven and lou williams doc and pg all come out and say chemistry was an issue trust was an issue like we weren't on the same page and it's just like i think just the way they handled some of these things also was an issue with just not accepting and taking that accountability of hey we do have some issues that we got to work through and kind of figure out and said they denied it and then eventually it you know has come out yeah and certainly I've made this argument before that we in the media can tend to overrate this inside baseball kind of stuff at times to to where because you know we have access you more so than me being the beat reporter traveling with them all season and so that's the stuff that we know that the public can't see by watching the games and so just to like provide value that we can provide we 
maybe tend to overrate those things uh, mm-hmm. just because that's what we know that the public doesn't. But I think in this case, the way that they had this lack of chemistry in the reporting very much ties in with how they lost, right? And even what PG said of like not being able to make the adjustments, this team, whether it's Doc Rivers, whether it's Kawhi, PG, Lou Williams, Montrose Harrell, they didn't have the ability to have the hard conversations to say, all right, Montrose Harrell, you're not going to play. To say, you know, all right, you didn't make this rotation. I'm holding you accountable. Or uh, to Doc Rivers to adjust the rotation or to just be able to go up to your teammates and say, hey, you need to play better. This is what we're doing isn't working. We have to improve this. If you don't have any kind of personal equity with someone at all, you don't feel comfortable saying those things to someone and you don't feel comfortable being told those things to someone. And I think that that the way that they imploded where they just, it started snowballing and they just couldn't find anything to turn it around very much ties in with the reporting of what the interpersonal dynamics were like. I mean, I I think you, you just described it perfectly. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So now to, to move to a different subject though, these guys, despite all this, they lost there's going to be a bigger spotlight on all of this, but they got completely fucked by the bubble and guys getting COVID and Patrick Beverly getting injured. You know, I mean, I think he was probably one of the guys that they were referring to of like when the reporting came out that there are guys who weren't in shape to play the type of minutes they needed to play. And, you know, Beverly that he keeps himself in good shape, but he's coming off an injury. That's not his fault. Um, And Lou Williams and Harrell and like all, all these guys just weren't playing at the level that we expected them to play at and Kawhi then I, I think he wore down because they had to try to have him guard Luka Doncic and mm-hmm. had to have him guard Jamal Murray and then he didn't have the energy for offense to do that you know 43 minutes a game um compared to what he had to do in Toronto where he didn't have to take on that role so these guys I mean they were still pretty darn good is it an overreaction to the bubble if you're gonna say that hey these guys aren't one of the championship favorites this year or is the bubble really more representative than the regular season was i I think it's an overreaction i I still have them um i know we're going to get into projected record and and you know season outcomes and stuff um i I still have them as the second best team in the west and and it wouldn't surprise me if they ended up being the one seed um i I do think with you know the lakers being the reigning champions and and coming off the offseason that they just had um you you probably have to put them as the favorites at at least in the west um but you know i'd put the clippers right behind them and and then looking at uh the east like i I guess maybe you, you put Milwaukee ahead of them or, or maybe they're, they're neck and neck but to me they're right there as like the second or third best team um, in the NBA right now and uh, I, I think to your point I think we do overrate some of this stuff and to me it's like I, I don't really see how it can get worse I mean I guess technically it can get worse um, and you know there still are some of again they haven't solved every issue that they had um, and a lot of it seems to be you know on Ty Lue's shoulders but this was a team that you know the starting lineup which is going to be returning had a plus 22.9 net rating uh, in 147 minutes. That was the second best net rating in the NBA of any lineup that played 100 or more minutes. So that starting lineup, um, you know, was one of the best, you know, if, if not arguably the second best lineup in the NBA last season. And again, 147 minutes, you know, not a big sample size uh, that dropped to po- uh, plus 9.6 in 77 playoff minutes, uh, which is still obviously a, a really good number. So yeah. I think having that core 
you know, starting group, you, you know, you know, they're going to play, you know, 15 to 20 minutes a night together. And then now bringing in Serge Ibaka, Luke Kennard, uh, Nicholas Batum, still having Lou Williams. Um, like, I, I think looking at that top eight, top nine, like that's as good as, as I would say almost any top eight or nine in the league. And, and I think you're going to see some, some differences in, in Ty Lue and, and his rotations and stuff. So I, I do think they have that foundation of, um, you know, a, a really, really good, I mean, still have Kawhi like they have two all-star you know all NBA level guys still have a deep do, bench. do they well I mean that, that that's also the other thing like we don't that, know that's what... the that's the biggest yeah. question about this team to me yeah um and, and I think to your point you know one of the bigger differences between the regular season and the bubble w- was this in the regular season Kawhi and PG together on the floor had a plus 13.2 net rating in the playoffs, that dropped to plus 1.1. And that is a huge difference, um, especially with how many more minutes they were playing in the playoffs. So, you know, that partnership was not as effective in, you know, you, you saw some of those big runs that happened against them in the Denver series with both guys on the floor. Um, so that that's going to be, you know, that, that's something though I, I don't think is necessarily indicative of, I think it was a lot of the things you talked about, um, you know, some guys not wanting to be there, guys being out of shape, um, just the, the team kind of snowballing with some of the chemistry stuff. Uh, but I think, you know, we, we focused a lot on the chemistry stuff, but the, the, I think the injuries last year kind of also went, you know, under discussed where they only had 11 games last year where they had the top nine of their rotation available. And um, I know there's some noise with that because not every team's going to be healthy throughout the season, but they were yeah. 10 and one in those games. And um, they, they tied the Warriors who had the worst record in the league for the, the most starting lineups used, um, and this one I thought was really interesting. This was something I, I used earlier in a story in the bubble. Um, Giannis, LeBron, AD, and Chris Middleton combined to miss 34 games. So those are the top two players on the top two teams in the league. Yeah. Uh, Kawhi and PG missed 39 games. So they missed five more games collectively than the top four guys on the top two teams in the league. And I, I think that was kind of the difference. If, if you look at the records between the, the, the Clippers and the Bucks and the Lakers, like if the Clippers had had the health of the Lakers and the Bucks, I think they would have had the same record or, or you know, the same net rating or, or it would have been close. So um, I, I do think, I think this team has a better, slightly better bench, at least on the top end of the bench. Um, I think they have a, a more modern coach in Ty Lue. And um, I, I do think entering next year, they should be as good, uh, you know, if not slightly better. Well, so what changes do you anticipate that Lou is going to make uh, compared to what Doc Rivers was doing? So every coach comes out and says that uh, they're going to play faster. <laughs> That's like the go-to thing for for every new hiring. Uh, we're going to play with more pace, uh, you know, more space. But if you actually look at Ty Lue's track record um, in Cleveland, uh, I believe they went from 28th in pace his first season to 16th to 8th. And I, I know there were some personnel changes there. Kyrie Irving ended up leaving. Um, you know, it, it kind of shifted more uh, around LeBron. But, um, you know, if you, you know, they were top five in three-point rate uh, in all three seasons. Um, you know, they, they did play yeah. faster. And I think, you know, Doc's refusal to embrace threes, you know, I asked him about it multiple times over the past two seasons. Like, you know, I, I think in both years, they were top 10 in three-point percentage, but they were bottom 12 in, in, in three-point attempts uh, per 100 possessions. And it was like, why aren't you guys shooting more threes? And Doc was really a coach who believes in empowering his guys and in, in playing into their strengths. And, and for this team, uh, you know, especially last year, there's a lot of mid-range jumpers. You know, Kawhi is, is one of the best in the league at that. Lou Williams, Paul George. like So it was a very mid-range heavy attack. Um, but you know they, they were I think seventh and three point percentage uh, and I think 
that's going to be one thing that Ty is going to have to shift is, um, you know, yes, I think you want Kawhi taking mid-range jumpers. That that shot is, you know, essentially unstoppable when he's making it. But the other guys, like you want to see Paul George even taking more threes. You want to see Lou Williams, Pat Beverly, now Luke Kennard. Like those guys should have the green light to be taking four to five threes a night. And I think if you can juice that up a little bit, um, you know, th- this team will have better spacing, a more modern offense. And, and you know, they're already the second best offense in the league. Um, but I think they have the chance to be the first if, you know, th- they do take that step. Because um, if you look at their shot profile, like it was kind of inefficient. It was a lot, you know, yeah. they, they were one of the highest teams in mid-range jumpers. So, um and, you know, not, not great. They don't have a lot of North South guys. They don't have, a, you know, a lot of athleticism offensively. So um, I do think that's something to watch is just how loose spaces the floor, playing some Serge Ibaka at the five, obviously um, going smaller a bit, maybe with Marcus Morris at the five. Like, I do think there are things he can toy with that Doc Rivers just wasn't going to do or, or do consistently. Well, and one of the things that struck me too was when they tried to get Kawhi Leonard going in the post in the Denver series. They just double teamed him and the Clippers didn't make him pay in part Mm -hmm. due to the lack of spacing. You could also just blame the lack of continuity, just the overall lack of passing on this team as well. I mean, to just like there are not many times where guys are just throwing great passes to people for layups or great dimes to the weak side for this team. And so, you know, that's something that I'm not sure Ty Lue can fix all on his own. But his history in Cleveland was he goes for more offense when the chips mm-hmm. are down and more shooting when the chips are down and that's probably something that this team could really use and he also uh employed switching defenses a lot more i think uh, there was some of the personnel that they have ibaka at center can do that at least late in the clock they've got batum now as well they, they've got a, a lot of size that they can throw out there with this group if paul george is going to be the two so I, I think that's something that they could go for as well um particularly if the, if they're not going up against Denver which was not a great matchup for them with Jokic obviously um so explain this to me why did they acquire Luke Kennard what kind of a role is he gonna have for these guys I I think they view um really they they view all three of their additions um as upgrades over their predecessors I I think you could make the case uh you know I I think most people would that that Serge Ibaka is an upgrade over Montrez Harrell um, I agree. And, you know, it gives them, you know, rim protection, defensive versatility, but then, uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the other end gives them that stretch. And, and really, you know, not, you know, talked about enough. He's coming off a career best scoring season, averaged 15.4 points a game, which is the most he's ever averaged. Um, so Serge, if anything, is actually, you know, maybe even better offensively than defensively, or, or it's a lot closer than it was earlier in his career. Um, then Luke, I, I think it is replacing Landry Shamit and, and and what he, I mean, they're different in, in, I think Landry is a much better off ball mover. I, I do think he's a better shooter, even though their number, their career numbers are actually identical. Um, but but Luke is going to provide like the Clippers wanted Landry to handle the ball more, um, and that was something they talked about last preseason. Of you know Landry might end up being the backup point guard, and, and they wanted him yeah. to to. He did some of that in college, actually. Like it, I think it was kind of a surprise with the Sixers when he moved into this JJ Redick role immediately. Exactly. Yeah. So that that was the way he, he was billed as kind of a combo, a guy who could handle the ball, shoot it, and, and then you know Philly basically turned him into a JJ Redick clone which is, you know, Doc loves that you know type of player. So he used them in the same way. Um, but, but you know, it was something that Landry talked about. I had a story in the beginning of the season of, of Landry talking about wanting to play point guard more, but that never materialized for, for various reasons. Um, I, I think the Clippers pulled the plug on it pretty early. And, and I think that that is another thing you can maybe put on Doc is, um, 
you know, whereas some coaches will develop younger players, even kind of through the growing pains. Doc has always been someone who, you know, like, and we saw it with Zubats too, where, where, you know, if he'd get in foul trouble or just wasn't having that good of a night, he'd all of a sudden get benched in the second half or like the last 15 minutes of the game, um, where, where some coaches would put the guy back in and, and just have him play through that. Um, so with Landry, that, that just didn't work, the, the point guard experiment. But I, I do think Luke is going to get those reps. Luke is someone that, um, you know, uh, was playing in Detroit, so I don't know how many people were actually watching him. But, you know, average 15-4-4 four four last year, um, you know, has become a good three-point shooter. He can handle the ball. He can play make a bit. Um, so I, I kind of view him as the, the co-lead of the second unit with Lou Williams. Um, and, you know, Reggie Jackson is back. I, w- I was kind of surprised by that, honestly, with, with his performance in the playoffs. But um, I view him more as like an off-ball shooter. I don't think you want the ball in his hands. I don't think you want him making decisions. So I do view they're probably going to go with a, a you know, Reggie Lou uh, Luke, you know, uh, triumphant there with, with the three guys. But I do expect Lou and Luke to be the primary ball handlers of the second unit. And I think he gives you an interesting look where, like, maybe you can close games with him. Um, depending on the matchup, where you're just going with this huge lineup, where you have the, now this six foot five point guard, and, and you could put a P, you know PG or Kawhi on a point guard and, and hide Luke on a wing. Um, d- d- you know, it depends on the personnel, but um, I do think he gives you a, a different wrinkle that they didn't have last season. So I expect, you know, I think there's a chance maybe he even leads the bench in, in minutes. Um, you know, as they look to rest uh, Lou a little bit, you know, Serge Ibaka a little bit, keep those guys fresh for the playoffs. Like it wouldn't surprise me if they put more of that, you know, 27, 28, 29 minute a game load on Luke um and and you know now he has some knee issues that and, and that's something I think to watch here is um you know I thought it was an interesting trade that Detroit gave up four second round picks to get off of him um I mean I know clearly they didn't want to pay him uh and and maybe there was some concern with his knees but that was to me like a little bit of a red flag of, of why are they willing to give up so much yeah. uh, to get off this guy so um th- that's the thing I think to watch with him but I, I do expect him to have a big role and clearly be the, the seventh or eighth guy uh in this rotation yeah and now Detroit Detroit did get the 19th picket in that trade eventually uh, as well. But yeah, the four second rounders, I mean, it seemed like they actually really valued getting Rodney Magruder just so they could stretch him and then they didn't even end up having having to stretch him in the end. But I do, the Kennard thing to me is interesting. I think in the regular season, it's great. They can use another ball handler. He's a good passer and shooter. I mean, I know Shamit struggled defensively in the playoffs last year, but I think I expect Kennard to be even worse. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you can play Kennard and Lou Williams together. I mean, that's probably too bad of a defensive backcourt for the regular season, not to mention the playoffs. It did sort of arouse my spidey sense a little bit on maybe this means that Lou Williams is not long for this team. Um, Or maybe it just means that they needed this backup initiator for the future and they can extend Luke Kennard and Lou Williams will just, you know, his contract will just expire after this year and he can be a longer term piece as an initiator for this group going forward beyond this year. Maybe that's part of it too, but I still have major concerns about Kennard defensively in the playoffs. And I think once you get into the second, third round of the playoffs, he's going to have to be, have his minutes and matchups monitored very carefully. I think you hit on something there with Lou. There has been a lot of smoke with this team uh, in terms of trading Lou or Pat. You know, I expected one of like I expected Montrez to be gone. Um, I was not surprised by that, but but I also expected one of those two guys to be traded. And I do think if this team makes a move before the trade deadline, whatever that move is, um, I, I would expect one, if not both, to be involved in that. Um, you know, a, a popular thing that's been thrown out on Twitter is uh, Lou for George Hill. 
Um, and I, I think the Clippers have to include something else to make the salary uh, match. But um, I think that that's an interesting one because, you know, in, in theory, if you did that trade now, your bench makes a little bit more sense. You constantly have a, a three and D point guard on the court, whether it's Pat Beverly or George Hill. Um, George can take that defensive assignment um, that, that Luke Kennard can't take. Um, so I, I do think Luke is... If it's not this season, it's moving forward. He is Lou insurance. He can be the you know the, the lead initiator um, or co-initiator for a second unit offense, and I think that's the way they're viewing him as someone they want to resign, bring back in, um, and be part of this core moving forward. Real quickly here, because we don't have to make this the Luke Kennard podcast. But what do you think <laughs> the chances are they extend him right now? Uh, I I think it's I think it's relatively low. Um, you know, my my guess is that he probably wants more than they're willing to give him at this point. Um, th- yeah, this that might a- be why he is a Clipper right now to begin with, because Detroit <laughs> didn't want to give him that. Yeah, and, and and I think if you look at the way the front office has operated, they have rarely overpaid guys in, in the last three years. Like, you know, I, I think the Marcus Morris contract um, could get a little uh, ugly in, in a couple of years, but um, that was, you know, as you know, John Hollinger wrote like that, 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 you know, that's the, 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 the bird the tap, rights, the, the trap. Bird rights yeah. trap. And yeah. uh, so like you kind of had to keep Marcus, if, if you lost Marcus, I mean, I, you know, I, I think that this team would have had a big hit um, to, you know, the, their title odds. So they had to retain him, but you know, aside from that, which again, the, their hand was kind of forced into that. Um, I think if you look at their track record, they have not overpaid guys. You know, they have tended to get guys at, at market or below market value. And I, I you know, so, I don't know what Canard's value is. Like, I, you know, I feel like something, I don't know, three years, 24 million, somewhere in that range. Like, I, I think maybe they yeah. do that. And, and he's not going to take that. And he's not going to take that. And he, he's going to want, you know, double digit. So um, that that's where I think there's there's probably a gap on, on what he wants versus what they want. And, and so I would suspect they probably just play the season out, see how his knees hold up, um, see how he fits, and then just go into restricted free agency and, and see what he gets. Yeah, and there's a, there's a lot of good players on the free agent market next year. So I, I think that's probably just guys just don't take extensions who have played at all, you know, to be less than $10 million a year. And I don't, I wouldn't want to commit that right now if I were the Clippers. Um, you know, I'd rather maintain flexibility for next year. So um, any other kind of playing time lineup issues that Ty Lue is going to have to sort out here that we haven't talked about yet? Uh, I, I think one thing that I, I'm interested in is Kawhi and or PG playing more at the four. Um, I think if you just look at the way the league is trended and, and you know, some of the, the best teams in the league play their wings up at the four. And I, I know, I guess Marcus technically qualifies as that, but um, you know, fr- from what I had heard last season, Kawhi and PG were reluctant to play up and, and that's why they ended up being the starting two and three uh, rather than three and four. So I, I do think if they can, you know, and I think that kind of goes into some of the, um, treatment stuff like I, I think there, there was a reluctance like you know Paul didn't want to play the four in Indiana either um, so this has been kind of a trend with him but I, I do think if those guys are willing to embrace that and, and play a little bit more at the four that is something that could unlock a, a just different version of the offense because I, I thought you saw that in the playoffs when they would go small and it was it was you know for two minute stretch three minute stretch like they were basically impossible to guard like that that's why oh yeah the the morris at center units morris particularly center, in the Dallas even, even jermichael even jermichael yeah. like you know when they'd go jermichael at the five and then Kawhi at the four like that was really tough to guard and all of a sudden he had driving lanes and and that was something that you know going with zoo or trez at the five 
or, or, or going with, you know, more traditional lineups, like they didn't have that spacing and they didn't have those driving lanes. And again, this team, if we're looking at, you know, one of their weaknesses, like they don't have a lot of North South guys. It's a lot of East to West. It's yeah. a lot of just kind of, I'm going to dance with you and then try to create a shot on the perimeter. It's not a lot of guys who can get to the rim. So they need spacing. Spacing is really important for this team, especially with also just not having playmakers and guys, you know, really good passers. Like spacing is more important for their driving lanes. So I do think Ty embracing some of that, you know, Surge is going to help with that, of course, as a good three-point shooter. But um, going with smaller lineups, I think, is something I'm really intrigued by and I, I think could unlock some different things for this team. Um, who's going to start at center? Avica Zubats. Um, as as Hollinger, you know, your podcast partner and, and my colleague has written now multiple times, you know, all-in-one metrics painted Zoo as like a, a top 15, top 20 center this season. And I, I know the casual fan listening like might not the, you know, think of him that way. But um, if you look at a, a lot of his, his key, you know, metrics, He's on par with guys like you know Rudy Gobert, like like he he and Rudy and I'm not like I'm not saying he, he is Rudy Gobert or is ever going to be on that level, but he is you know objectively a very good screener. He, he's a good finisher at the rim. He's a good rim protector, and he's a really good rebounder. And, and I think those strengths and a guy who's only 23, um, you know, are are things you want to develop and, and continue. And I think you, you saw it in the bubble. Like he played a lot better. Was putting up double doubles and. Um, the second Trez came back, you know, Doc started to go away from that. Uh, so I think, you know, if I'm the Clippers and I'm Ty Lue, I'm saying, Zoo, you're a starting center of the future. We still have you locked up a few more years. Like, here are 24 to 26 minutes a night that you're getting every night, um, and let's see what you do with it. Um, you know, I think if it was Doc still coaching the team, maybe he would have gone to Surge because uh, you, you probably couldn't make that argument like Surge, Surge is better. You know, I, I probably, I think he's their closing center, uh, but I do think, uh, Zoo is going to be the, the center to, to start games and, and maybe even close depending on the matchups. Yeah, I, I think that that makes sense. You know, Ibaka to me with his defensive versatility and shooting, you know, it's maybe just a little bit better of a fit. But, you know, I think there are some matchups where Zubats would make sense. You know, I'm not sure how great a post defender mm-hmm. uh, Serge Ibaka is. So going against AD or Nikola Jokic, th- that might be uh, more of a matchup for Zubats uh although I mean it's just it's tough for like these young centers sometimes like you know part of why he Doc stopped playing him was he just had a few times where he would just like fumble away passes under the rim or like just couldn't finish which is atypical he usually finishes pretty well but he struggled to finish at times in that Denver series or getting Mm -hmm. stripped down low and then it seemed like everyone lost confidence in him immediately and you know they never went back to him um and then Nick Batum how does he fit into this group so I, I think he's the he's the Roddy Magruder upgrade, and um, I think expectations need to be tempered with him. If you look at how bad he was last season, yeah, um, he's he's lost some weight, hasn't he? Yeah, so I, I think because he looked he, fat last year, I thought. I I think he's in better shape, and, and to me, he's a guy who can raise this team's ceiling. Um, because again, I think you look at the top eight. Um, you know, which would be the starters plus Abaka, Lou, and Luke. Uh, to me, that is better than than last season's top eight. But you know, I think one through maybe like eleven or, or one through twelve, this team probably isn't as deep as as last season, uh, in my opinion. Um, but the guy I think that changes that is Nicholas Batum. And again, you're not expecting Portland, you know, the, the Portland version of him or even like early Charlotte. But if you look at like 27, 18, 
in 2018-19. Like, if you could get that guy or even 80% of that guy, that's a decent ninth, ninth guy. Uh, you know, it's someone who can play multiple positions. And I, I think w- with him, what he's going to help is, um, you know, th- is offensively w- with just his playmaking and his ball handling. And, you know, I went back and, and watched a decent amount of film on his offensive stuff and his defensive stuff. And um, I, I think just him being another ball handler, an- another guy out there, especially with that second unit, um, or, or even playing alongside Kawhi or PG and, and being, you know, because this team, again, you know, they don't have a traditional point guard. They don't have that floor general that, that's going to micromanage. So you need ball handling and playmaking from other positions. And that's where I think, you know, Nick as a, a three or a four um, can, you know, provide some funky, uh, you know, kind of wrinkles to, you know, second units and, and, and you know, maybe uh, like mid third quarter units. Like he, I think he, he has, you know, he, he has stuff that this team needs. And uh, I think, you know, defensively, he, he's probably better defensively than offensively at this point and a guy who could defend multiple positions you know not good defending the pick and roll and if you screen him he's gonna die in some of those screens but um you know is someone that with that length um can still bother guys on the wing a bit so i think you know taking a gamble on him as a ninth guy like um you know i I thought it was a smart move and clearly it was a move they were waiting on because there was kind of this weird gap where their moves had been reported but they waited on them you know once the free agency period officially started they waited for a few days and then you know they didn't make they didn't fill in the back end of the roster and it you know it seemed like they were waiting for something and that clearly was Nick Batum to you know for the Gordon Hayward situation to be resolved and then for him to be a free agent so um I think he he again if you're expecting him to be a ninth guy on this team that's like more realistic expectations I, I don't expect him to be like a starter level or, or six man level um but I think if you just ask him to be a additional like, secondary playmaker and ball handler and a decent defender um he can probably provide that yeah, and I think, I don't know if he's going to work out. He may just be done. But the theory of him, as you mentioned, is one that makes a lot of sense because that's a big weakness of this team still to me is just their overall passing unselfishness, those quick ping-ping passes around the perimeter. Um, and he at least has some size. You know, he's not He doesn't have a target on his back defensively. I don't know that he's going to be good, but it, at least he's not someone where like other teams are licking their chops. Like he at least looks the part defensively, which is kind of that's kind of what it what it has to be sometimes uh, as well. If you're just like, ah, oh, this guy's got pretty good size, he's got some length. Let's just uh, you know, let's go at Lou Williams instead here. Um, any of the like, give me the just like. 22nd status report on some of the young guys who who are left over from last year there's kai bowman there's terrence mann uh they drafted daniel latoru number 33 and fiando kamigale uh of those guys do you see any of them emerging into any kind of a role at all to be honest not really this season um you know the the clippers uh front office has been rightfully lauded for you know just the way they've operated the last three plus years and you know of course landing Kawhi Leonard and, and trading for Paul George but um, a, a lot of the moves are on the margins and and you know trading away Blake Griffin trading away Tobias Harris like making difficult decisions that were for the the, the best for the franchise um, the drafting though has been kind of a, a bit of a crapshoot and I think you know drafting Shea Gildress Alexander was obviously um, you know the, the right pick and ended up being a steal at, at number 12 um, even though they, they technically traded for him, but you know they, they uh, were, were talking with Charlotte about that. Um, but then you look at some of the you know Jerome Robinson. Um, Fee was someone that w- was they drafted higher than, than draft Knicks had him. Um, uh, now going to Daniel Oturo was someone that they drafted higher than, than draft Knicks um, had him. And I, I just I, I wonder like they've tended to be safer w- with their draft 
picks and, and drafting guys, you know, 21, 22, 23. And, and you know, I, so I, I just don't know, like the, the, those guys are supposed to be NBA ready, uh, but they clearly haven't been, you know, Terrence had, had a few nice stretches with, with the team last season, but yeah, uh, I still have some hope for him. That, I think he could be a rotation player. Pick, he was, yeah, he no, was fine. I think yeah. these guys can grow into rotation players. It's just, they were billed as like ready now guys. And then when you saw them, they clearly weren't ready now. So that that's where for me, I, I've just, wondered why they haven't taken more gambles on you know if you're going to be a good team that's not really playing your young guys might as well grab like a 19 or 20 year old just to stash and, and try to develop versus like a 22 year old who you think is ready but isn't ready and i think the, the best example of that was uh, jerome robinson but um I, I think i mean if i had to guess it would be terrence or fee um i, I think that you know uh, fee having a baka is going to be huge for him um you know be, because you know, fee is a three and D big and, and having a Baca, you know, one of the, the better, you know, current three and D role-playing bigs in the league as a mentor, I think is going to be huge for fee. Um, Terrence for, for, you know, him, it's, it's just his three pointer, you know, teams yeah. do not respect his shot at all. Um, you know, but he is this interesting six foot seven point guard, um, who, who, you know, can get out in transition. Um, he's one of the guys, you know, he might be the best on the team on, or, you know, top two or three in getting to the rim. Um, you know, he, he's just still not that good of a finisher, you know, um, and, and, you know, again, teams are just playing off of him because they don't respect the shot. So if I had to pick, I would probably pick Terrence. Um, but as of now, I'm expecting those guys to maybe get some opportunities, but to probably end up on the outside looking in on the rotation. Yeah, that would be my assessment as well, though. You know, someone like Atura, I mean, we haven't seen any of him at all in summer mm-hmm. league or, or, or anything. I mean, who knows? He could come in and kill it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think other than just the Patrick Patterson slot of like one more versatile guy as a backup for this rotation does seem like relatively filled to me and they'll always of course be competitive on the buyout market they will have a little bit to contend with with the hard cap but uh, that should be navigable with cash and and dumping some players uh, around the trade deadline you would think um any other big strengths for this team that we haven't talked about yet um I think uh, again, like how how dominant they were on both ends, um, and you know, I, I think most people focused on what they could have been defensively, and and you know, I've, I think that was undone a bit in the playoffs, and, and they really struggled defensively. Um, but you know, offensively, this was the second best offense in the league, and um, you know, to me, with the changes that they made, um, you know, w- w- I think improving their their spacing, I think it, you know, sur- like surge versus. Trez as a passer, I think is an upgrade too. Like Serge is a ball mover, a guy who can make quick decisions. Um, uh, and, and, you know, uh, I think that wasn't one of Trez's strengths. You know, he was obviously a really good scorer, really efficient scorer. Um, but, you know, he, he tended to hold the ball a bit and, and, you know, it was like when he got the ball, he was looking to shoot yeah. to pass. So, yeah, um, I, I mean, Serge, the ball will get out of his hands quickly. Now, whether that's going to be a pass <laughs> or, or a jump shot is, uh, some question. I mean, he's definitely he's improved since you know. I think the 2017 playoffs, his first year in Toronto, he really struggled making decisions off the short roll. But I, I think he's he's gotten better there. He's not a plus, but I think you know I I buy what you're saying about him being better than Harrell in that in that respect. I, I think the 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 biggest thing for me though, the, the biggest improvement maybe from or 
I don't know if it's the biggest, but it would be up there for me uh, from last season to the season is the addition of Surge defensively just as a trustworthy backline defender and rim protector. And again, I know he's not the same guy he was in Oklahoma City. I know he's not the same guy he was early in Toronto, uh, but he still was top 15 in defensive field goal percentage allowed at the rim. Uh, You know, Vita Zubats was top 10. So now I think you have, um, again, they might go to smaller lineups where maybe it's a Marcus Morris or Patrick Patterson at the five just to kind of space the floor. Uh, But I think now you have, you know, 48 minutes of a, a good rim protector on the floor uh, at all times. And they didn't have that last season. And, and we saw that really hurt them in the playoffs. E- even Jermichael Green, who I think, um, you know, is a, is a solid defender, you know, is a bit switchable, um, you know, mobile, like he can do different things. Um, he was not really a rim protector. You know, obviously Montrose Harrell wasn't. So I think upgrading that spot to Ibaka, um, while again, he, he's not the elite defensive player of the year caliber guy he used to be. I, I think that is a, a giant jump for them and, and something that I think will help with, with some of the defensive issues that they had. Yeah, I mean, they're going to have a lot of size right now and versatility with Paul George as your two. Beverly hopefully will be more healthy than he was. And then even at the end of the clock to Ibaka's mobility to get out on the floor. I think this is a team that has the capability of being the best playoff defense. I would still put the Lakers up there because AD was just absolutely ridiculous in the playoffs last year defensively. But I think the Clippers can get close to there and... When I think about just the strengths of this team, I think now last year you could make the argument, well, yeah, Kawhi and PG didn't play that well, but what they were really undone by was the Harrell thing and that there just weren't enough players that they could trust in the rotation at the end. And this is a theme I would carry on to a lot of teams is just between the Lakers, the Bucks, the Nets, the Clippers. I think, you know, those are the teams that have the most star power in theory. We'll see about the Nets. All of those teams to me have done enough that if their stars deliver, they should be able to win it, right? Like it really, to me, what this Clippers season comes down to, and a lot of these other teams too, is just whose stars are going to be better at the end of the day. I don't think there's a huge difference between the Lakers supporting cast and the Clippers supporting cast. I might actually like the Clippers supporting cast better than the Lakers, particularly because Montrezl is now a Laker. Um, My big question is just, you know, how good are Kawhi and even Kawhi have more faith in probably than PG because Kawhi played great until just the last three games of the playoffs last year and PG kind of struggled they just need Paul George to be a top 10 player in the NBA if he's that then this team is as good as anybody if he's you know the 20th best player you know struggling to make the all-star team type of guy then the Clippers might be sunk no matter who they added in the offseason and I I do think that uh, PG's struggles were a little bit overblown like definitely in the Denver you know the the second half of the Denver series and and at you know definitely in the Dallas series at times and um so I guess you could just you know say the whole postseason um but he he was just so up and down last year that um you know on a a per minute basis uh his numbers were actually almost identical uh in the regular season to his regular season in in OKC in in 1819 like they were a little bit worse but they weren't far off and um I think the way people talked about him in the regular season um you know was like he was playing the way he played in the playoffs and that hadn't yet happened um so it was almost a self-fulfilling prophecy with him where I I do think he he can be a little bit sensitive to that stuff um and and, you know he even admitted that in the bubble that he was you know reading what people were saying and and checking social media and like that kind of got into his head a little bit so um, I, I think that was definitely a factor in the playoffs, but I, I think he is closer to you know that level than, than people think. Um, 
but there was these wild swings with him at times during the season. And like, you know, he, he started off really hot and, you know, he had, he was averaging like almost 30 points a game the, the, the first few games as a Clipper and then would go through stretches where, um, you know, I, I think I uh, wrote something about this for like the last, like, I think 20 games or so, he only had like two games, um, you know, two 30 point games over the last like, you know, 20 something games of the season. And it was just like, he, he kept, he was so up and down. So I, I think him getting back to, just being that consistent guy, uh, I think to your point it is, um, you know, what they, what they really need. And that is going to be their ceiling because when you look at the Lakers, like, um, I mean, the thing is like, even if PG is a top 10 guy, it might not matter because the Lakers might have two top three guys, two top four guys. Like, um, you know, so PG really has to get back to that. Um, otherwise I, I agree with you. Like, even if Kawhi is the best player in the world, if PG's top 20, top 25, like, you know, it might not matter against a team like the Lakers where, where you have two top three, top five guys. Yeah. George's season was so interesting. I mean, his three-point shooting was nasty last year, 41% on 9.7 three-point attempts mm-hmm. for 36 minutes. I mean, that's awesome. Now, he's only 46% from two, and you mentioned the decline in free throw rate as well. And that's something that they're going to be worse at this year uh, with Lou Williams maybe having his role reduced and Harrell, who is a, a huge free throw guy. You know, They may not get to the line quite as much as they did last year, and that was really the only thing that they were elite at. You know, Everything else, they were ninth or worse offensively in the four factors except for that if Zubats plays more they might be a little bit better on the offensive glass this year but that obviously that's not a, a major component any other weaknesses that you'd be concerned about if you're Ty Lue going into the season you mentioned the backup four I think that is a weakness I think people um like I think the Jermichael Green loss was big for them um I do think that uh had Jermichael Green been retained they might have been my favorite um and you know i i know he, he he's just a role player like you know eighth guy on the t- eighth ninth guy on the team but i, I do think that was a big loss we're, we're having a, a lineup with you know let's say uh, abaka him batum canard and lou defensively in, in the backcourt there are some issues there but um you know i, I think just having jermichael as another three and d big that you could rotate play with abaka play with zoo play him at the five like that was a valuable piece that I, I think they missed, and and you know is someone that um they, they just didn't really replace that. Like I, I'm not a big Pat Patterson guy. Um, I, I know some uh some of Clippers Twitter is, but uh for for me he's not a, a top ten rotation player on a championship team. Uh, I agree, he's just not. So yeah. um you know and he's okay in certain matchups. Like he actually kind of randomly defended AD like as well as you can for like a, a bench big. Um and and you know he, he's a decent post defender. But, um, you know, he can get exposed in the pick and roll. He's not a rebounder. He's not a rim protector. Like, he just doesn't bring much outside of, you know, threes and um, occasional post defense. And, and that, to me, is just not a top 10 guy on a championship team. So um, I, I suspect that might be something where if a guy's bought out, they look to, to kind of fill that hole. Or maybe they just end up playing smaller and, and you know, Batum plays the four uh, on the second unit. But um, for me, the, the, the one that I think doesn't get talked about enough is that this team isn't that athletic. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I think everyone always focuses on Kawhi and PG. And, and yes, of course, like th- those are the two athletic rangy wings, but this team is not very athletic. And I, I think, you know, I, I, I don't know. Are they more athletic than last season? Like maybe, but you know, yeah, maybe Sur- not. Like, Surge, like in terms of your effective athleticism defensively, I think yeah. Surge gives yeah. them something. But no, you make a good point there. And I'm a little bit worried about declines from guys like Beverly 
you know, Marcus Morris uh, as an ISO defender looked like he was not that great at times with the Clippers. The thought was that he could switch and like, you know, he got beat pretty badly out in the perimeter sometimes. Ibaka is someone who could fall off a, a little bit. So, I mean, yeah. Tr- Tr- Trey Burke and Seth Curry abused them in that Dallas series. Like that was yeah. just ridiculous. Yeah, Batum is another guy. I mean, there are definitely players who are at the time where they could experience a drop-off. And if you get a couple of those, now all of a sudden you're looking pretty thin. But I'm going to assume that these guys are going to continue to play at their established levels until they don't. Um, And Beverly, of course, you know, he can always, he always seems to have something, right? Mm -hmm. Where, and I think he, to me, is an insanely important piece. And we saw... I think at his absence and inability to play that many minutes, you know, that you can't replace it. Like they need someone who can guard the other team's point guards. Um, and they need someone who is, you know, can still shoot it on the other end and isn't going to be a liability. And Beverly is tough. He can be part of a switching scheme. If you now have to go to, we got to close games with Lou Williams or Luke Kennard. Now you're right back where you were with giving the other team a place to attack at the end of games and you're in big trouble against really elite teams yeah i mean there there are a lot of people with the clippers that would have said last season pat was their third most important player but behind the two stars um you know as you said i mean last year luke wasn't on the team but you know when he was out uh during the dallas series like now you're going with landry lou or reggie jackson and we we saw how, how um i mean lou is a noted defensive liability but we saw how reggie jackson was kind of targeted and, and picked apart um in that Dallas series. And uh, I think, you know, that is probably the biggest defensive drop off. I mean, now for sure it, it was arguably before, you know, zoo to Trez was, but, but I would say that there wasn't as big of a gap. Um, but, but now it's clearly on the roster, like f- from Pat to the backup point guard, you know, situation uh, that is the biggest defensive drop off, uh, I think on the team. And um, you know, his injury history, his foul trouble, um, you know, consistently kind of getting into that early foul trouble where he'll pick up like yeah. two reach in fouls. The yeah. first, like, I mean, that's why minutes. I think like, he's, I, I thought that his making all defense last year, was uh was not deserved in part because those fouls just you know don't like your team's in the bonus and he doesn't he doesn't get have to pay for that a lot of times or he's on the bench like the fouling is a problem Mm -hmm. um okay let's uh let's get it here predicted record for this clippers season um if you're struggling with the 72 game conversion i my handy spreadsheet will happily convert 82 (laughs) games to 72 games for you uh if you'd like but uh i went first on with my last guest so uh you're up this time so it it was a a little straightforward for me the the clippers played 72 games last year um they they were one of the teams who had a, a clean 72 so they went 49 and 23 uh, which I think was a 55 and a half win uh, pace over an 82 game season. Um, I think that this season is going to be, they're going to be, as I said at the top, a little bit better. I do think that um, even if there is some regression, as you mentioned, with, with some of the role players, you know, aging um, or just, you know, natural regression, like there will be, I think, greater health this year on the flip side. Like it, it, they were one of the most injured teams. And if you looked at, the, the teams that missed the same amount of games as them, it was the Golden State Warriors. It was the Detroit Pistons. Like it was teams at the bottom uh, of their respective conferences. So, um, you know, I think among contenders, they had the worst health luck. Now, there are some injury prone guys on this team. And, and you know, again, Pat Beverly, uh, PG, um, you know, like uh, Kawhi has his injury management stuff. So like some of those guys are still going to continue to miss games. Um, but I, I do think their health 
you know, should be better. It doesn't mean it will be, but if you account for that, you account for some continuity, um, you know, with the starting lineup returning, uh, with, with a couple of the bench pieces returning. I do think overall this team should be slightly better than last season. So I'm picking them to go 51 and 21, which is a 58 win pace um, in a 82 game regular season. Uh, so I, that, that is two games better than last season. Um, and, and that is accounting for greater health with also the offset of some regression and aging to the supporting cast. Yeah, I've really struggled with this because it's a 72-game season. They've got these guys who kind of need to be load-managed for sure. There are going to be injuries. But on the other hand, you imagine that they're going to come out with the same mindset that the Lakers had a year ago where they are really trying to get this taste out of their mouths. They, mm-hmm. you know, they had a month more rest than the Lakers did. They should have a decent amount of continuity. And you think that they really, just from a mental standpoint, are going to come out with fire in their eyes. And they're going to try, I think they're going to try to win a lot more games. I think the organization, you know, is learned a little bit of a lesson from how they managed last year and that they need to build some more during the regular season. And Paul George will be healthy from the start. On the other hand, you know, 57 expected wins last year over an 82 game pace i mean that's pretty high like you and i actually predicted you predicted 53 wins although that they would win the championship which i probably would have agreed with and uh i predicted 52 and they were well above that pace as it turned out even with all the injuries so all of those things i i really struggle to come up with where i think that's gonna land 51 feels a little bit high Mm -hmm. to me um I also think that yeah. the the rest of the league at the top kind of got worse. Um, yeah, like I, I but the bottom like, got better. You have a lot the bottom fewer got free wins that's, that's than true. you did last year. But yeah, it just feels like to me like that that kind of you know if you have the Lakers, Clippers, and Bucks as your top three again, that kind of like four through eight, four through nine range got a little bit worse, and then yeah. that like ten through fifteen range got better. So I, I feel like those teams are almost going to beat up on each other. And and but I, I'm I'm with you. I think like th- there's going to be a lot more motivation with this team, and there was that sense last year that they didn't fully take the regular season uh, you know seriously. It was like let's just get to the playoffs. Um, you know, we have the talent and we'll figure out in the playoffs. Like we, we just want to get there healthy and it doesn't matter what seed we are, you know, we'll be fine. I think that's not going to be the attitude this season. I think they are going to take it more seriously. And, um, you know, I, I do think it's going to be a point of emphasis. Like, let's go get the one seed. Like, let's try to win as many games as possible. So um doesn't mean it's going to happen, but I do think uh, to your point, like there will be some added motivation for sure. Yeah. And I think they're just, they're going to want to get that taste out of their mouths as soon as possible. I'm, I think I'll probably go with, you know, I kind of see this as a 55 win team uh, over the the course of the season, but it does, it does kind of make you think like, you know, why would they be worse than last year? Mm -hmm. I I mean, maybe, maybe Kawhi doesn't play quite as well. And George doesn't play quite as well when he is healthy. I mean, I do think that Harold, Harold might be a more valuable regular season player, particularly, and Lou Williams isn't going to be as good this year. You know, that's probably a big contributor to why they had a top five offense, and I could maybe see them taking a little bit of a step back offensively. And they still were really good defensively somehow. (laughs) You know, it didn't, it it never really seemed that way. Um, But except when they would have these dominating performances every once in a while when they just like throttle Houston and Houston or like they would kill Dallas, which was like a, a great offense. So I, I don't feel great about this, that this is going to be a common theme for me this year. Uh, but I think I would pick them to be a 55-win team, and that translates out to 48 wins, and you had uh, 51. Um, best case scenario for these guys? 
win the 2021 championship. Um, yeah. I think, you know, best case would be something like uh, uh, being a top five offense and defense again. Um, Ty Lue embraces a more modern style of basketball, um, doesn't completely uh, platoon the starting lineup and bench and uh, tinkers a bit, you know, gets uh, a lot of different lineups out there, different rotations, getting different guys playing with each other. Um, you know, uh, I think like one thing that was really effective last season that we barely saw was was Zubats and Jermichael Green. Those two, um, you know, I forgot off hand what their net rating was together, but in the regular season, it was pretty good. You, you just didn't see those two play that much together. So I think getting, you know, playoff, uh, Lawrence Frank talked about it yesterday. Um, you know, everything they did this offseason was was geared towards the playoffs and our playoff rotation and, and, and just kind of making sure we're ready for that. So I do think, um, you know, some of that stuff being resolved, uh, you know, w- with uh, optimizing the lineups and rotations, I think Ty can do that. So, uh, and then the chemistry and, and leadership stuff, you know, I doubt it's fully resolved, but maybe it's better. Um, and, and they remain healthy. Like the, the health is going to be the biggest thing, I, I think, with this team, more so than most, just because they do have that track record of, of you know, several guys being pretty uh, injury riddled. Yeah. How many wins do you, would you say in the regular season for a best case scenario? Uh, I, th- I think that they could be 61 pace. I-, I don't think that would be crazy. Um, yeah. So I don't know if that's 52 or 53. Yeah, a 60 uh, win pace would be 53 wins. So, yeah. I, yeah, I, I, so I, I, yeah. I wouldn't be shocked by that. Yeah, and I, I would I would say uh, that 54 wins, so that it, yeah, it's like a 61, 62 win pace for, uh, as well. So that's, uh, yeah, I mean, they definitely could be the way. I'm just having so much trouble in my head translating – because usually they'll be like, okay, what were they last year? How did they get better? How did they get worse? How does that translate compared to what they did last year? And I'm just having a lot of trouble like making that conversion in my head because there are just so many confounding factors. It feels like, and that, and that's the thing like that that was so confusing about last season is. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about the chemistry and continuity, but there were so many, like, you know, they had the injuries, they, they had the midseason, um, you know, additions and, and changes with Marcus Morris and, and Reggie Jackson, and um, they, they never practiced. And, and um, you, you could put, there's just so many factors that I, I felt like were working against them. Um, and, and in spite of all that, you know, they had that, um, you know, they, they still were the two seed. They still were top five offense defense. They, they still were in prime position to make the conference finals be, before, you know, an, an epic collapse. So I, I do think that if some of those factors um, don't go against them as strongly as they did last year, like this team arguably could be as good as we thought they were going to be. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, nearly was essentially. How about a worst case scenario? Uh, worst case for me, um, I, I didn't put down a record. I, I would say losing in the second round again. I, I don't see, um, like we're, we're saying worst case realistically, like of course, Kawhi or PG could go down. And, right, right. Like, dramatically changes. Yeah, know, yeah. Outcome, with but. that, you know, with reasonable amount of injuries, not, you know, Kawhi Leonard, uh, injures his quad on the first day of the season and misses the whole year like that kind of thing yeah so i would say losing in the second round again um and it being kind of the same weaknesses and issues exposed which which would be 
some of the perimeter defense, um, you know, uh, I think they obviously had Kawhi, PG, and, and Pat, but it was like outside of that, like anytime anyone else was on the floor, they were getting targeted, you know, whether it was Lou, Reggie, Landry, like uh, those guys really got exposed in the playoffs and uh, they're bringing back two of the three and then they replaced the third one with, as you said earlier, like arguably a worse defender. Um, so that's still going to be an issue. Um, you know, I, again, we don't really know what's going on with like the ninth or 10th spot in the rotation. Um, you know, if Nick Batum is done, you could be looking at an eight-man rotation in the regular season in which depth might have, you know, never be more important than this season with, with COVID and, and the, um, you know, the, the shortened, condensed uh, schedule. Like, sure. depth, depth is going to be really important. And um, so I would just say, you know, they end up losing in the second round. Um, this time, not some epic collapse, but just the weaknesses are exposed. And, uh, you know, again, they arguably could have lost or been pushed to seven in that first round series against Dallas. So I don't think it would be insane for them to, you know, be basically at the same level and end up losing for similar reasons. So I would say, you know, offense stagnation, you know, offensive stagnation, they didn't add that high level playmaker or ball, uh, ball handler. They still don't have a bunch of high level passers. Um, and then again, the chemistry and continuity, like maybe um, Ty Lue isn't able to manage the locker room. Maybe yeah. the role players don't really make that much of a difference, like the the new guys. So, and you still have Kawhi and PG doing the same stuff. You still have some of the same issues and um, they're just undone in the second round. So I, I think that's kind of their range to me is, is, you know, barring something insane happening, it's second round to, to championship. Yeah, I would say, you know, under normal circumstances, 49 wins. So that works out to 43 normally would be about a worst case regular season scenario. And maybe I could see them losing in the first round. That really more is dependent on who else is out there in the West. But how does that happen? You know, Kawhi Leonard is kind of looks a little bit more like the guy at the end of the Denver series. I don't expect that, but, uh, you know, or or he's going to miss 20 games because uh, of load management and Paul George is like not playing at an all-star level anymore. I think that's possible with him being 31 before the end of the season. And just a lot of these kind of older guys, I mean, they got a lot of guys in that range where you don't expect them to have a major drop-off, but it's a still a significant possibility. And if, if some of those go wrong, then all of a sudden you could be looking at Kawhi Leonard and kind of a bunch of guys which, uh, you know, that's not that good. Kawhi Leonard is a great player, but that's not that good of a team. Um, yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. Um, I, I don't, it's hard for me to see them only winning, uh, well, you said you said 49, so that would be 43. Yeah, in, 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 yeah I, I guess that, that, that's probably their floor. Um, yeah, yeah, 48, 49. All right, man, this is a lot of fun as usual. Thanks so much for coming on. It was good uh, getting into the reporting, getting into this team. Uh, no, no one knows them like you, so it was really fantastic to have you on. We appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on again. You all have heard me talk many times about my wife here on the show. You might recall that she's a yoga teacher, and I wanted to let you know that she is starting her own streaming service called Yoga with Ashlyn, A-I-S-L-I-N-N. That's how you spell it. And if you enjoy our meticulous, data-oriented approach here on Dunked On, either you or a significant other will find this to be the best streaming service there is for yoga. Unlike apparently a lot of teachers, she spends about an hour planning the sequence for each class. Why is that important? Well, it helps you get the most out of every second that you're on the mat, whether it's one of her quick 10-minute refresh classes or one of her super hardcore inversion labs. This detailed sequencing makes all the difference 
whether you're looking for injury prevention, getting into that really hard pose you haven't been able to master, or just getting your mind right at the end of a really hard day. She's got over 130 classes, and that library is growing at one to two classes per week. She'll even take requests from members on new classes that they like. You can search by poses, by body part if you're feeling something is tight. She's really built an impressive platform. And whether you want to get into yoga more yourself or you know someone who is really into yoga and is looking for a way to get a lot better, check out Yoga with Ashlyn. There's a free seven-day trial. You can either go to yogawithashlyn.com or there's a link to her service in the description of this podcast. That's yogawithashlyn.com, A-I-S-L-I-N-N, or just click the link in the podcast description.